Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Monday morning, September the 19th, 843-661-0937. With all due respect, good morning, Royal Rebel Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Good morning. Freehold, do you care to comment on this past weekend's <laughs> baseball escapades yeah, and right endeavors? This was one of the worst sports weekends for me in general. I broke my phone charger. I can't believe I didn't break my phone. I still, oh. I broke my phone case. But. So what's so lousy about I mean, I understand the Braves and Phillies. I get that. Yeah. But, I mean, you knew you were playing a pretty good baseball yeah. team on the road yeah. um, after a long road trip, correct? Well, it was a sweep. And on top of that, yesterday, everything that could go wrong in fantasy football in both of my leagues went wrong. Okay. And I was just oh. – the refs helped with that. So you're more concerned about fantasy football than you <laughs> are. I thought you were going to say it was a Gamecock fan. A million fan. percent, yes. Yeah, it could have been a Gamecock fan. Right. <laughs> That would have really sucked. Yeah. Um, who didn't see that coming? Uh, it's exactly. kind of it's kind of unusual to me that you know you go to Columbia and I get it. I mean, you want to go there with a positive attitude and a, and a disposition of which you believe leads to success. But I'll tell you, when Georgia came out of the tunnel, I mean, it was a twelve o'clock kick, so I didn't tailgate any at all. I mean, I went, got to my seat, uh, took in some of the pregame. Never do that, you know. I never watch the kids warm up and the coaches meander about on the playing field. I'm always out tailgating. Um, enjoying myself, so to speak. Preparing. Uh, well, I mean, it's gotten real expensive. I mean, it's too expensive to just take in a college football True. game. So I want some of the pageantry of college football, and that includes uh, elongated tailgating sessions. Uh, as, as Beamer says, however long it takes you to get it prepared, yeah. man, just get prepared. I don't care. Yeah, just do, do, do your preparation or your preparing. But um, So I'm in the stadium, and the, um, the Georgia Bulldog offensive line came out of the tunnel with some um, – like hoodies with the sleeves cut out. And I mean, I, I knew to go home. <laughs> I, knew, I knew when I saw those monsters roll out of the, uh, out of the tunnel, I knew to go home. Um, it just, it is what it is. And uh, we, we can talk as much or as little about this as you choose to. I do want to do this. Little. I want to thank, I want to thank Jason Priester and Chris Clark for agreeing to come on in short notice on Friday. And we'll do this again uh, during the football season. This is not a sports show, and we certainly accept and respect that. But it is a show listened to by political interested folk who enjoy college football. I know this because of the cross section of variety of listenerships or listeners we have. So um, every Friday during football season, Jason will come on to the nine o'clock hour. We've identified it decompression hour. Now the sales team may rename that depending on what sponsor they find. Because I found out about this sales team that if there's an opportunity for sponsorship, they will absolutely find a way you know to it. do it. So it could be the the blankety-blank, blankety-blank last hour of the week brought to you by blankety-blank. Um, right now we're calling it the, the political decompression hour uh, from 9 until 10. And it is college football season. So we'll, um, we'll have Jason on in the 9 o'clock hour every Friday. We'll have Chris on every, unless their schedules get wacky, but right now they've agreed to come on uh, in the 9 o'clock hour to preview um, the games that are coming up. Uh, I think Chris said, to me, the the, the Clemson game went about as it planned. Uh, I didn't get to watch much of it. I watched a little bit of it, but to me it went about as planned. Um, Clemson has some issues on offense, and they're not quite as good. They don't appear to be quite as good on defense, but they're still elite. I mean, they still got great, great talent. They've recruited extremely well for several years, um, and that's going to pay dividends. Now, it looks to me like I want to be careful to not sound like a um, you know a Gamecock fan trying to find something wrong with this with this arch rival because I can find a lot more wrong with my crowd than I can yours. <laughs> um, but but with Clemson, it still looks to me like they've taken a step back at quarterback. 
And when you take a step back at quarterback, you're naturally going to take a step back as a team. Is that a fair analysis? I mean, Clemson fans, you know better than I. But, I mean, you had world-class quarterback play between uh, Watson and Lawrence, and you just don't get that right now. I mean, you're just not getting world-class quarterback play. You're, you're winning games because you have better talent from top to bottom of your roster, and you're probably going to win Saturday against Wake Forest because you've got better talent. Now, it's only a one, I think it's a six-and-a-half or seven-and-a-half-point spread in Winston-Salem, um, but it's still Wake Forest. And you can't convince me that when you look and compare the rosters, Wake Forest has the depth and talent that Clemson does. So so not knowing about I understand the quarterback at Wake Forest is lights out. I understand they're well-prepared. Uh, they probably are one of the consummate overachievers. If you looked at the um, – we get about what – we get out of our program about what we should. I mean, if you look at Kentucky, they probably get a little more out of their program than they should because it is a basketball school. When you look at Wake Forest, they get a lot more out of their program than they should. Wake Forest is the consummate overachiever in college football. Uh, on the flip side, the Gamecocks would probably be one of the consummate underachievers in all of college football. And um, I articulated that opinion yesterday on Facebook late yesterday afternoon. My wife and I were coming home from the beach. We drove from um, Columbia to the beach uh, Saturday after the game because we had plenty of time. We <laughs> Oh, let, let me After ask the, the game? Let me ask the Royal Rev already of this. So you're such a loyal fan, you right. never leave early. That's That was true. Never? That was true? <laughs> that was Excuse true. me? Yeah. Yeah. Excuse I, me? I have to admit, and, and you know, you and I talk about this sometimes. I'll leave in a damn minute. Yeah. And and you have, and, and I don't. I've always kind of taken some pride in the fact that, you know, obviously we spend the money, so we're going to get the most of the experience. Uh, we always like to stay until the very end. In fact, we watch the team and the alma mater at the end and then make our way out with the crowd. and Doofusy. Yeah, well, I've, doofusy. That, I don't think there's a time we haven't stayed till the end. Um, doofusy. <laughs> to this time, we left in the third quarter. Okay. We left. <laughs> We were gone. Rev says, Rev texts me like in the third quarter, says, where are you? I said, I'm about to get off 20. Yeah. <laughs> Not on. Right. Because <laughs> you got to go back away from, uh, you don't go through Florence from, uh, you know, there to get to the beach. I said, I'm about to get off. He said, "You." that's kind of what I expected. Yes, Look, exactly. I don't make any apologies. If they're up 30, I leave. If they're down 30, I leave. Um, now, I'm not leaving a good game. I mean, I'm not in that big a hurry, but if somebody's up 25 or 30, and, and I mean, I've been going for 50 years. I mean, you know, I'm not saying I've never gotten surprised. Of course, crazy things happen. Uh, your team's down 28, you leave, and they make a run and nearly win the game. Nobody wants to miss that. But I've just been going for so long, it's not the end of the world for me to say, in the third quarter, my wife kind of knows the look. I'll just say, yep, I'm ready if you are. I mean, <laughs> so, and it's not as I'm not being a bad fan. I'm, I promise I'm not. It's not because I'm, oh, I want to go home and tear things up or burn something to the ground. I mean, it's not that. It's just I've been going a long time. And when it gets to a certain point of the game, I feel like I understand where, where kind of we're going to end up. And uh, and when I got to, um, well, I mean, really and truly, when that offensive line came out of the tunnel, I kind of already knew where we were going to end up. We just had to play through the um, the realities of it. But, um, I mean, George is elite. I mean, George is really, really, really good. My daughter sat with me, and she said, I said, this is probably one of the better teams I've seen in williams Bryce in a long time. What do you mean? I said, well, the Lawrence and Watson teams of Clemson, when they came to Columbia, they were really good. There was a couple of Alabama teams that were really, really good when they came to um, to South Carolina, the Williams-Brice Stadium. Uh, there, there were a couple of Florida teams when Spurrier was there that were really, really good. Um, I'm trying to think of some others. I mean, obviously, there's been a handful of teams better than anybody else. But this Georgia team last year in um, Athens, this year in Columbia, 
I mean, they they are they're elite. I mean, there's no there there aren't any weak spots in this team. They graduated, I think, seven seven defensive players got drafted to the national foot. There's a difference in seven players graduating and seven players getting drafted. Sometimes when you suck, seven players graduating ain't a bad thing. <laughs> but when seven players graduate and are drafted into the National Football League, I think three of those guys left early. Um, you believe there's going to be kind of a talent void, and it'll take a while. For, but Georgia's recruited so well, and Kirby's doing such a good job at getting that team ready. And um, the depth, the cycling of rosters, I mean, all this terminology that we used to say, they're, they're just really good. I mean, they're just really, really good. And South Carolina was just in over their heads. Um, I did believe this, Rev, and then we'll take the call. I did believe, and I still believe this, my comment before the game, uh, I'm on these text threads with my Gamecock friends, my comment before the game, I thought it could be a game that a player like Rattler could have been like Steph Curry playing at Davidson. Steph Curry went to Davidson. Steph Curry is part of the best three-point shooter in the history of NBA basketball. But Steph Curry went to Davidson because people weren't sure he was big and strong enough to play at North Carolina or NC State or, you know, uh, one of the elite programs in college basketball, Duke, would come to mind. But they played one of the really good ACC teams, and he lit it up for like 42 or 3. And I thought yesterday, excuse me, Saturday could be the game that Rattler, despite being on the inferior team, could have looked like, okay, I get it now. I mean, I see why this kid, Steph Curry, scores 40 against NC. Or, or UNC, and all of a sudden you say, okay, we missed on that one. I thought Rattler, um, Saturday could have been a game that he looked like one of these five-star elite first-round draft choice quarterbacks, but he just simply didn't. And why? Don't have any idea. Uh, we'll, you know, that's, that's for the sports show. I'm sure the bad boy of sports radio will delve into this a lot deeper, a lot deeper than we do. But uh, just another uh, confusing Saturday. But, but my comments are this, and then I'll hush. My, my comments are, to, as far as it relates to the Gamecocks, because I can't talk in detail or with specificity about Clemson like I can with South Carolina. Um, it, it's not, I mean, it's not, I'm not angry or frustrated or that bothered by what happened Saturday. I mean, that, that had to be expected. I mean, Georgia's really, really good. The Gamecocks are in flux, new coach, second year of his tenure as a Gamecock coach. But it, it's almost like every Gamecock football season it begins with a, a wing and a prayer. I mean, I could be real creative and say a chicken wing and a prayer. But but it seems to me that every season, Gamecock fans and Gamecock faithful cross their fingers and, and, and pray to God that this is the year. And that shouldn't be the case. I mean, that just simply should not be the case. Uh, this program has a rabid and loyal fan base. It's in the best football conference in America. It's, it's facility upgrades to put it in a position of being uh, Clemson as well. To the, let's say the top 10% of when a recruit comes to Columbia or Clemson for that matter, they're not going to see a lot better amenities. I mean, they're just not. The football operations building, the indoor practice facility at Clemson and South Carolina are second to none, except maybe Alabama, Oregon, Texas. You know, Oregon's got the Nike money. Alabama's just Alabama. And Texas has the oil money. Texas A&M would be another. But there's no question the Gamecocks and Tigers, as it relates to facilities and the impact or impression you make on a recruit, are in the top 10% of college football. I mean, there, there is no doubt about that. One takes advantage, one does not. One has been routinely and um, annually successful. The other has not. Why? I mean, it's not about a Saturday in, in, uh, in, October, excuse me, in September against a number one team that is a, a legitimate 
threat to repeat. That's not what I'm frustrated by. Why does every season of Gamecock football begin and normally end on a wing and a prayer? And I, and I say this, it has to be accountability. I mean, it has to be um, who's assigning responsibility, who's assigning expectation, who enforces those, ex- those expectations, what happens when you don't meet those expectations, because the outlier was Steve Spurrier. And you know what Steve Spurrier didn't need? He didn't need anybody placing expectations on him. He did it himself. I mean, he was very well aware of what he was capable of. It's almost like Spurrier came to Columbia and said, I don't get it. And his expectations were high. Let's win. Yeah. I don't care who we're playing. Let's win. Um, I'm a jerk. I'm, you know, I'm hard to get along with. Most folks don't care much for me once they get to know me. But that's not my job to be likable. It's not my job to be popular. It's my job to win football games. And he won more at South Carolina than anybody ever has because he didn't make excuses. There were certain expectations that he had of himself and the people he surrounded himself with, and it was all about winning games. And I just think South Carolina has to has to understand and reformulate its model. And its model has to require guys. It has it can't be improvement of facilities. It can't be a better fan base. It can't be a better conference. All those checks are in the boxes. It has to be a dedication, a dedication to what the expectations are. Clemson has expectations. And if you're a Tiger and you don't meet those expectations, something happens. I'm not sure that's the case at South Carolina. That the Gamecocks kind of, uh, we kind of sort of have expectations. We kind of sort of demand certain things. But there's things. always next year. Well, I mean, there you go. Or we can blame the chicken curse. I mean, we've got, a, we've got a certain percentage of our fans who actually believe in foul witchcraft. I mean, that, I mean they really do. That There's always an excuse. Here, here's the, 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 the range of excuses go from, well, we played, we were not in a conference for 30 years. Well, now we're in the toughest conference in America. So, so the reason we're, we're not consistently good at football is we weren't in a conference for 30 years. Or either we're in a conference, but it's just too good for us to be in a conference. I mean, the absurdity of that. <laughs> Somebody has to implement expectations. Somebody has to police those expectations. And you either meet and exceed those expectations or you don't. And if you don't, something happens. Um, I'll give you a good example. Don Staley. How can the university not have an opinion or response on record for what Don Staley did? But they don't. They don't. I mean, I've not heard a whisper from the University of South Carolina about what Don Staley said representing that university. What is the expectation when you say something is racist and inaccurate as she did? What is the expectation within the university's athletic department when someone makes a mistake that egregious? I can tell you what it is. It's apparently nothing. I mean, it's apparently nothing. And that that speaks to, somebody can say, well, Ken, that has nothing to do with football. It has everything to do with football. It has everything to do with expectations. What, what are the expectations when you get it right? What are the expectations when you get it wrong? And when a women's basketball coach can be as racist and inaccurate as Dawn Staley and the people in charge of the athletics department do nothing about it, how do you expect to win in football if nobody polices and nobody holds accountable those who, who make millions of dollars on behalf of the state of South Carolina and the supporters of the University of South Carolina. It, it will never change, guys, that there's not enough buildings to be built, that there's not enough recruits to get on campus, there's not enough money to pay coaches unless there's some systematic way to implement high expectations, reward people that meet those expectations, and hold accountable those who don't. I mean, that has to happen. I think it happens in Clemson. I mean, I don't think there's any question about it. I think Clemson has a certain way of doing things. And you either do things up to those standards 
or you find another jersey to wear. You, you find, and I'm not talking about on the field. I'm not. Talk, I don't think Dabo disciplines his players any different than most coaches do. That there's just a mindset. That, that there's a that there's a culture. There you go. There, there's a culture at Clemson that just believes in winning. We're not just believing it. We're going to execute a plan that leads to winning. And in South Carolina, well, I don't know, man. We weren't in a conference for a long time. Now we're in a damn good conference. Got this chicken curse. Uh, we're too political. Okay. I mean, keep making excuses and, and keep building your football seasons on a wing and a prayer. A chicken wing and a prayer. And, and by the way, the fans have been there. I mean, they, well, they asked always for the fans. have. I'm, I'm tired of the I'm tired of some of the hierarchy or establishment of the university saying, well, you know, we got finicky fans. Everybody has finicky fans. No, but I'm saying two sellouts for the first sure. two home games. I mean, that's that's we've talked about the decline in attendance at college football games and sporting games in general. Um, so two sellouts for the first two games, home games of the season. I mean, that's impressive. The fans were there to support the team. Very lively as, crowd. As they were asked to be. I mean, and then Beamer, and I'm not pointing a finger at Shane Beamer. I mean, the last person to blame for this is Shane Beamer. I mean, he's inherited th- these lack of expectations and this last lack of systematic monitoring and enforcement of these expectations. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Verd, Marlboro County. Morning, Verd. Good good morning. Uh, one sport for now. You know, Clemson claims they have the best entrance in college football, but definitely Appalachian State's got the best ending. Uh, they did this the week. <laughs> they did this week, yeah. Uh, on the political scene, uh, of course, 51 days from the most important election, uh, I guess, in our lifetime, uh, both on a local level, uh, county level, and uh, the national level. Uh, Marble County has a chance to flip two House seats, so... Uh, elect a Republican House member for the first time in uh, 150 years. And I think our District 55 representative nominee is going to be on the show this morning, Ken. I think Robert Norton will be here at about 8.05, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's right. And uh, we were over in uh, McCall around the county putting up signs Saturday. So hard worker. He's been been to Marlboro County probably 20-something times working and talking to people. And, uh, you know, we're looking forward to November day. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate it, my man. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661. Don't want to bring bad news, but it is what it is. The Dow futures are already down about 320-ish points. 315, 320, 313 is still moving. It's down about 1.1% from this morning. I mean, today could be another disastrous day on Wall Street. It could be I mean, I don't know some of the technical trading. They get to certain thresholds, and if it breaks that, the technical threshold, it'll it'll drop another, you know, three or four hundred points, and then another. There's another testing mechanism there, another testing. Uh, and any, anyway, I mean, I I just I've said it for six months, and I'll stick to my guns. I think there's some really really nasty days ahead. I mean, I I'm not an economist. Take my word for what it's worth, but it seems to me that some of the fundamentals of our economy are beginning to really show breaking points and i think we're headed for a really 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 bad rest of this year first half of next year maybe even the entirety of next year we're raising rates into a recession i mean just think about that i mean it looks to me we're heading into a recession and the fed is raising rates i mean we've not so somebody said well there's a precedent to this yeah the volcker precedent I mean, you know, it's trying to break inflation. We've allowed inflation to get so effective in our economy. The, the driving force in our economy today is inflation, and we're having to try and address infl- inflation uh, more aggressively than we ever imagined. I'll give you this. 
they, they tell me, I mean, they being the experts, CNBC, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, the people I read and trust in financial matters, the Charlie Gasparinos of the world, who really and truly try to call it as they see it, they've, um, they've conv- convinced me that we're going to raise interest rates at least 200 basis points, probably even 300 basis points before it's all said and done with. Uh, an increase of 200 basis points uh, adds about $570 billion in interest payments on the federal debt. Let me say that again. 200 basis points adds about $570 billion in our debt service. I mean, it's, it's a crippling debt. Uh, it how does the government deal with that? Well, I mean, it was somewhat manageable when the, when the interest rate was one quarter of 1%. The Fed rate was a half percent, right. somewhere less than 1%. All of a sudden, you start getting the Fed rate at 3, 3.5%, 4%. You're going to add somewhere between $570 billion and $750 billion in simple interest payments. I'm not talking about paying it off, servicing the debt, an interest-only loan. I mean, some of you have had a construction loan to pay for your house. You don't, and then it converts to a you know thirty year mortgage, fifteen year fifteen year mortgage. Well, we're simply paying paying the interest. We're not paying anything on the principal, and that interest payment could increase. Well, it's already increased about four hundred billion. It's going to increase another hundred and seventy to two hundred fifty billion. So we're going to be paying somewhere around six to seven hundred billion dollars a year more M O R E more on our federal debt interest payments, and that is going to have a crippling effect to GDP growth. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Can I argue we probably got the recession the day Obama got elected because the minute made Obama, what a safe thing, Obama fight. But see, what happened is, is when you, inflation started hitting, so anybody that was making a hundred grand basically got a $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 pay cut. And then my question is this. If you can figure it out, you don't think they know it. Of course they know it, don't they? Right? I would imagine that I would imagine they're they're much brighter minds than I at work on this. Well they if you know it, they got to know it, right? I mean, don't kid on for Papico can't be the only SOB out there that's smart enough to know that all this all this crap is going on. I don't mean to get too excited this morning, but neither one of you and I I know it, you know it. Are we that damn brilliant? They know it. So this is all a bunch of BS. And we just got to figure it out, I guess. I don't know how to figure it out. Just like the whole Martha's Vineyard thing. I would like for any Democrat there that's got the guts to call in today and defend Martha's Vineyard if it's not the fact that a bunch of elitists say that the rules don't apply to us. You can send in 100,000 illegal immigrants into Brownsville, Texas, but you can't send 50 to the richest place on earth. You don't think everybody there could have gave it up? They could have raised $50 million and made every one of those Venezuelans a millionaire overnight, and it wouldn't have been a couple on their ass. But didn't they? They gave them cocoa puffs. And, and then the military sent them off to a damn base. Where are the people of America that are going to sit there that voted for this idiot? You know, all 65,000 that voted for him, or 65 million. Where are they right now? Where are they bragging about this? And, and I don't, I just, it just leaves me flabbergasted. And Carolina, the problem Carolina is, Carolina is just another big government agency that hasn't been run worth of crap since I was born. So, thank you, anyway. Breeze. Hey, that, that's about, thank you, Breeze. That's about as well explained as I've heard it put in, in a single sentence. The University of South Carolina is a, is about as foully run or poorly run a government agency as any since Breeze has been born. I mean, that, that's, 
Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, when, when you got that amount of resources, that conference affiliation, that rabid fan base, and you still kind of cross your fingers that every season's a crapshoot, that's just incompetence. I mean, it simply is. That, that's not meeting expectation and who's been held accountable to meeting uh, said expectation. I want to go back a couple of notes. L- look, we can talk about GDP and we talk about negative growth and we talk about raising the interest rates. I want to give you a couple of numbers that I think are very interesting to me. Um, you saw the FedEx number. I mean, for those who keep up with finance and the economy, we saw the FedEx number. FedEx has lost about a third of its value as a company since, what, two weeks ago? I mean, it had a 20% sell-off followed by 15% sell-off. I mean, I made a note Friday. We didn't get to this. FedEx, to me, is probably as good a reflection of everybody else's business as we can. There's not one company you can say, hey, this company, if this company goes up, the country goes up. If this company goes down, the country goes down. But I think FedEx is a great reflection good of everybody else's business. Not directly and not exactly, but but in some weird uh, sort of way. Um, if FedEx is doing well, the economy's probably doing well. Now, FedEx has some internal issues uh, from what I'm gathering, so some of their, their CEO believes they got some, some cost issues. They've got some issues with contractors. Uh, but, but anyway, I, I think most who, uh, most who keep up with the economy to some degree would agree that, okay, I mean, FedEx is a pretty good reflection of where we are. FedEx has lost a third of its uh, market value since uh, 10 days ago, 12 days ago, and it'll rebound. I mean, FedEx is still a good company. E-commerce is still a growing part of the, the economy. Uh, they're in kind of a price war with UPS. Uh, UPS sold, uh, I think, all, sold 5%. Uh, they had a 5% sell-off, but nothing as bad as FedEx. So there's some macro at FedEx. That's the economy's getting solved. There's some micro at FedEx. They've got some internal issues. But but as a, as a company, they're pretty good reflection of where everybody else is in the business world. So when FedEx sells off, to me, that's a red flag. But that's, you know, I'm like, uh-oh, I mean, what's going on here? I mean, what are we missing? What aren't we measuring correctly? If FedEx has that bad of consecutive days as a company, something's up here. I'll give you another interesting statistic that I think matters a lot to me, just to me personally. I'm not an economist. Take it for what it's worth. During COVID, during the expanding of um, liquidity, when we printed all this money and gave everybody all this money and, you know, allowed people to not pay their rent. Now we're forgiving student debt or transferring student debt. The average consumer had $1,970. The average, um, what, what we call individual banking client, had $1,970 in their bank account. You know what it was pre-COVID? $464. So pre-COVID, not, not commercial clients, but the average individual checking account, uh, you know, the, 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 the average listener to this show, and some had more, some had less, but the average um, amount they kept in their checking account was slightly more than $400. It went up to $1,970. I mean, I've read bank after bank after bank. I know banks around here that, that have a market cap of about $500 million, you know, big local banks. Um, they went up to about $750 or $800 million dollars. And the majority of it was deposits by government agencies, school districts, local government, city governments. I mean, they, they had more cash on hand than they ever had. Um, but the average individual customer went from 400 some odd dollars to $1,970. Guess what it is today? 317 So it's back less than it was pre-COVID. People had a sugar high. 
And now we're coming back to reality. So when you see oil in decline and gas goes down, it's not because, but it is to some degree because of the strategic petroleum reserve release, but the majority is demand. I mean, when you, when you go to the grocery store and you spend 100 instead of 70, you just don't buy gas and travel as you did. You're careful about your spending habits. And I think these are the, I mean, the COVID liquidity expansion allowed us to paper over a lot of the cracks of the economy, but you can't do it forever. And, you know, the quantitative tightening, I mean, it really, this month is the first month, I think it's $85 billion a month that the federal government is quantitative tightening. They're taking, in other words, when those bonds they purchase mature, they're not repurchased. They're not re-injecting that liquidity into the economy. So we're taking about $85 billion worth of liquidity out of the economy every single month by this quantitative restricting, um, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. You see where I'm mean? I mean, quantitative easing, we're buying. Quantitative tightening, we're not buying anymore. So the Fed balance sheet is going to start declining in, in value, or excuse me, in the amount of debt it owes and the assets it holds, and interest rates are raising. So once again, um, the federal debt, the payment on the debt increased by somewhere around $570 billion. Most economists believe it taps out at about $700 billion. That's nasty. I mean, that's ugly. And I think we're headed to a really, really, really tough spell over probably the next 18 to 24 months. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning. Uh, you're off to a great start, uh, unlike uh, Carolina's football season. But I tried to tell you that Georgia offensive line would eat Carolina alive. And uh, that I I don't know why uh, they even bothered to play, to tell you the truth, except it's a great contract. And uh, Georgia is a wonderful team to watch. I'm just not a great fan. But uh, that's just me. The uh, on Carol on Carolina, their problem is, and it's been it's not something that developed in the last two years or ten years or twenty years. It's been over fifty years. They're more interested in designing golden parachutes and that sort of thing, and refining uh, parachutes for their administrators and errant uh, contractors than they are about actually being efficient in uh, football or anything else. And um, I think uh, that that's that's just a problem. It it is uh, it's corrupt. It's been corrupt. It's a culture of corruption. And I don't I don't know how you can fix that easily without a lot of pain and a lot of people jumping up and down. But uh, that that's got to be done. But we've got a problem with. I, I, for the life of me, I cannot figure out what the Department of Education does on the federal level other than try and destroy our uh, educational quality in this country. And the state Department of Education isn't much better. They, they have a lot of people sitting down there writing regulations, and Lord knows we've killed more pine trees than ever in, uh, in the uh, – Internal Revenue Department and and Education and Energy Departments as far as printing out uh, memos and delivering copies and making regulations more complex, but they're not accomplishing anything. And uh, sooner or later, somebody's going to have to come to grips with uh, the 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 uh, economy. And our very survival depends on the efficient production and use of energy. 
and uh, solar and wind ain't there, bud. Nowhere near there. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. We got to take a break. Don't want to get too far behind. First thing this morning, 843-661-0937 is our number. Love to hear from you on this Monday morning. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. You, you know, it may be a little early on a Monday for you to be talking all this economic doom and gloom talk already. Uh, you call it you're, doom and gloom, I call it reality. You're bumming me out. Well, am I wrong? I don't know. I mean, look at my I screen. hope you are. It, it, or the future's down 300 points yeah, or 280 they, points. Yeah, they are. Did they sell off 1,200 some odd points last week? Yeah, they did. Did FedEx lose about a third of its market cap? They did. Is FedEx a pretty good a pretty good representation of, or reflection of everybody else's business? I believe okay? it is. Um, and, you know, 200 basis points cost the government about $570 billion in our servicing of debt. Yeah. Well, give me something to be encouraged about. No. I'd love to be encouraged about uh, today. I really would. I'd love to look at these financial numbers and reports and analysis and say, hey, nothing to see here. I mean, everything's fine. Gas is going down. We've got this handled. Um, just go back to work and do your thing. There, there's nothing good here. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Hey, and Christmas is coming. <laughs> a lot of people depend on Christmas to, to, to make their year form. A lot of retailers, I don't think that's going to happen this year. Uh, people ain't got the money. We can't afford it. Uh, Ken, you brought up a good point in, 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 uh, about the gas, and I know they've been using the strategic reserve, and, and a lot of the decrease has been because people just can't afford it. Well, on top of all that, Dave, if you don't feel bad enough already, we're at a 40-year low on the strategic oil reserve. Mm-hmm. Trump has filled it up when gas was cheap. We're at a 40-year low. They're going to have to cut that out pretty soon, gas going back up higher than, than, than it's been. I noticed it came up a dime last week. I, I try to pay attention, and most of the stores around town, gas stations around town, came up a dime last week. And here's the thing. All you Democrats out there, this is what you voted for. You begged for this. You wanted this. You couldn't stand old mean orange man and his mean tweets. And so you voted for this. All you Democrats listening out, out there, I want to thank you for this. This is what you voted for. And like your, your favorite president always says, consequences have elections, or elections have consequences. Have fun with these consequences because it's what you asked for. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937 is our number. Give another um, example of something to be a little bit nervous about. There's a um, there's a business. It's, it was a, it was a kind of a, a fringe business. It's becoming far more mainstream now. Um, buy now, pay later. B N P L. There's several apps now that will offer you an opportunity to put in fifty bucks. You can actually do it online. You can subscribe to the app, get the app, get a prepaid uh, credit card. I mean, it's almost like it sounds like a credit well, card. Well, but it is. It's a prepaid credit card. I told you a little bit about it Friday when we were together. Um, it's grocery buying. I mean, the app allows you to buy groceries in a grocery store on time. I mean, imagine this. I mean, how can that be encouraging? It was a $13 billion a year business in 2021. It's nearly a $50 billion a year business now. So the number of or the, the percentage of people or the, the, the monetary number of people who were buying groceries, not, not, not four-wheelers, not boats, not trips, but buying grocery on 90 days, are have gone from 13 billion that total market share to nearly 50 billion dollars you don't finance your groceries in a good economy you just simply do not right 
I mean, we can argue whether you ought to finance a boat or a four-wheeler. My dad had a real simple philosophy, pay for your toys. I mean, I get you finance your home. I get you finance your utilitarian vehicle, something to get you back and forth to work. There's value and benefit in that. Most people can't, can't, don't have the cash on hand to buy a car or a home for sure. But, but if you want to buy, if you want a four-wheeler, save the money and go pay cash for it. If you want a fish boat, go, save the money. Go buy you a nice bass boat. Um, but now we're financing groceries, B-N-P-L, buy now, pay later. There, there are several apps. If I'm not mistaken, one may be called Sizzle or something like that. But you, it, it's about a seven-minute process. The beauty of technology, you apply, and within seven minutes, you get a basically a, um, uh, what am I trying, a digital credit card mm-hmm. for up to 250 or $300, and you go to you know your favorite grocery store, and you buy those groceries, and you have 90 days to pay it back. In good economies, people don't finance groceries. I mean, they just simply do right. not. But that number has gone from $13 billion in 2021 to nearly $50 billion um, today. scary. Well, it, is, it should. I mean, it should freak us all out. But, but look, hey, we printed the money. We avoided a recession. I mean, it, it, the crux of this matter, that the fallacy of our economic model, we, we are doing everything we can to avoid recessions because recessions cause people to lose political power. Recessions are necessary. Re- recessions are an ingredient of cyclical economies. It has to happen to purge and cleanse the misallocation of capital. Back in a minute. The majority of observations I make about the economy are G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip. I mean, when you tell me that the average uh, individual had 400 some odd dollars in the bank account in their personal checking account pre-COVID, that number went up to 1970 and back down to 317. I mean, that, that something tells me that's... There, there's something wrong there. I mean, there, there, there's a there's a consequence to those to that recklessness and, and that that level of spending. Once again, I'm not an economist, so bear with me for a second. Um, I understand that. I understand pre-COVID, 400 some odd dollars during COVID, 1970, post-COVID, um, and I heard this over the weekend. The branch Covidians. I thought that was well said. The branch Covidians <laughs> who still believe uh, in, you know, the the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth, you know, the annual COVID shot now. Mm. But when that number goes back to 317, something tells me we're papering over the cracks if we don't believe we're headed to a really, really tough economic time. The other is the FedEx. I mean, the FedEx number. Uh, once again, FedEx is not the 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 only example to which to measure or gauge where the economy's headed but I do think it's a good reflection of everybody else's business. The, the other, so, so I'm looking at these things in a, in a, in a non-scholarly, non-educated um, sort of way, and I see uh, black clouds. I mean, I see a lot of problems brewing. Now, someone texted me about five minutes ago and said, okay, uh, I hear you, smart guy, but explain why gold and the dollar have responded as they have. I mean, explain to me why. The goal, I mean, gold is not worth twice what it was, and the dollar has not declined, you know, in value. Well, I mean, there are two things kicking. So I want to I want to be, I'll take my Geo with the Kung Fu Grip hat off for a second and try to put on a scholarly a hat as I can. Um, I believe that the reason gold is not taken off as a hedge against inflation and the devaluing of the kind of a hedge against the dollar or devaluing of the dollar and inflation is cryptocurrency. I mean, I think crypto is an asset class. I think people look at crypto as an alternative to gold. 
Um, if I believe, what did um, CP call it? Remember the guy we had on right. uh, the Stanford educated genius financial? Holly Hoppatan. Yeah, yeah, gosh, yeah, Hoppatan. There, that's it. That's it. That's exactly it. You did well. Um, I mean, no, but but he said it's kind of schmuck insurance. I mean, just in case, just in case it all blows and goes to you know blankety blanket a handbasket. Um, I cussed a lot Saturday at the Gamecocks. I'm trying to. I got a quota. <laughs> And I'm trying to, that's why I say blankety blank instead of, you know, that. I see. Yeah, I've only got so many of those you, you words. You used up your quota. Sure. I mean, I, sure. I did it. I did it all at about a quarter. Understandable. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, um, but anyway, um, so, so if I want to try to take my G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu grip hat off and put on a scholarly hat on as I can, because uh, once again, I got a buddy of mine. He's in, he's an economist. And he texted me a second ago and said, okay, I hear you. I don't disagree with you. I mean, some of those realities are startling and alarming and concerning, but explain to me why gold has held its value. The, the only thing I can come up with is I believe people who normally invest in gold as a hedge against inflation and the devaluing of the dollar see crypto as an alternative. So you've got kind of a, um, you've got another market there to invest that sort of, or make that sort of investment, hedge against the dollar, hedge against inflation. I'm not buying gold. I think crypto is a better investment. So I think that addresses some of that concern. On the dollar, there's something called the Euro dollar's future market. And the Euro dollar's future market basically um, foresees global financial calamity. And the dollar's still the preferred currency of choice. I mean, it's still the, the best thing going. It's, um, it's not as good as we wish it was, but it's not in as bad a shape as some of the Euro, the Euro and some of the other uh, foreign currencies. So when you look at the Euro dollar futures market, and I do, not every day, but about every four or five days, I look and try to understand. I ask for guidance. I got a couple of buddies who understand that much better than I, and I'll reach out to them and I say, okay, what do you see here in the Euro dollar's futures market? Well, what I see and what they, and they kind of agree with me, that the world is beginning to see uh, or foresee economic calamity and they're betting on the dollar as they historically always have what happens when that bet is wrong i mean that bet's not going to be right forever i mean it's been right up until now but it's not going to be right forever so when it comes to gold and the you know the the dollar the exchange rate of the dollar to foreign currencies i mean i'm not saying i know i'm right there i could be wrong but but i think i don't think gold has had the big run up because once again, people see crypto now as an alternative to in, invest in uh, in relation to gold. And I think the euro futures market is rewarding the dollar because it foresees economic calamity that these other currencies will take it even take it an even harder hit than the dollar does. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Greg in Sumter listening to WDXY. Morning, Greg. Morning. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak. Listen, I uh, agree in large part with what you're saying. Uh, I don't agree with uh, the, the, the take that gold is strictly a uh, hedge against inflation. Um, oh, gracious. Um, I tell you what, uh, gold is money, and uh, dollars are paper. And originally, uh, the dollar was designed to uh, circumvent the problem of carrying large amounts of money around, which was heavy. Uh, but gold has always been money, as has silver. Uh, we came off of the gold standard uh, in the 70s, and as a result, uh, we were able or free then to print as many dollars as we needed to, to cover whatever expenses we took on ourselves. And the way we benefited from it was because uh, oil had to be purchased with dollars. Everybody needed dollars, and so people were greedy to snap them up. 
But the problem that we have right now, and whether or not it's going to happen, I don't know. The problem that we have right now is with the BRICS nations trying to get out from under the foolish procedure that we engaged in by making the the SWIFT system something that we could weaponize. And so when they recognized, when the world recognized that we were going to uh, uh, be a bully about uh, purchasing, they recognized that they can't trust us anymore. And so this uh, gold uh, is, uh, in my perspective, not an investment. It is security. It is insurance. Why are all of the central banks uh, why are they stocking up on gold? What is, what is, why is it that, that, that gold is in such uh, a state that nobody wants it? It's, it's, a, it's a relic, and yet all the central banks are stocking up on gold. Why is it that uh, China and Russia have so many gold reserves? And I believe, uh, I could be wrong, but I believe that the dollar is going to lose its position as the reserve currency of the world. And when that happens and all those dollars flood back into our economy, we are going to be, we are going to be in all kinds of hurt. Now, I don't know what else to say other than that. So if I'm able to buy uh, gold and silver to set it aside and I don't need it, well, I haven't hurt myself. But if I need it, I will be so happy that I spent some of these paper dollars to get it. But, Greg, would you convert the gold? Let's hypothetically say you had a million dollars worth of gold. What, what do you want to convert that gold to? I mean, do you, do you take a bar and, and buy a house? Do you take two bars and buy two houses? You see where right, I'm headed? You, you, you've got to eventually do, convert just, that gold yeah. to some model of currency, but you, correct? But I, no, not necessarily. You go for something of value. And see, today, the problem with cryptocurrency, it's speculative. Sure. I was in cryptos, and I, and, I, and I spent two years underwater, and when I came up, uh, I sold out. And that's fine. And I thought about going back in when, it went, when, it, when it's come down again, but I decided it's just too, it's too speculative. But that's the way everybody's investing today. Uh, Ken, they, they see something going up, and they jump on board. Well, it used to be that what you did was you, cho- you chose right and you sat tight. You looked for something that was being sold uh, at, a, at a value less than it was worth, and you bought it and you sat on it and you waited for it. And, uh, and so at some point, uh, if, I don't know if it will happen, but at some point, if people recognize that our currency is not to be trusted, for instance, if the BRICS nations uh, get their way and they cripple us financially, uh, if, if people recognize that, they're going to all of a sudden look around and say, where is something of value that I can get? And it's going to be gold and silver. And that's such a small market that it has the potential to go bonkers. But if it does, if it creates a bubble in that, in that space, which it can do, it's done it in, 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 in the Netherlands with the, the tulip bulbs. Everybody's got to have it. You don't think about it. All of a sudden, you're paying a whole lot more for something that is worth. Then, as you said, you get out of that market. And though it's not that I go to some currency, it's that I go to something of value. So, you know, I go for land. I go for a house. All those things are, are up and down. And you just have to look for value, and you take advantage of it. So well, that's, that's how I, that's Well, thank you, Greg. That's an interesting perspective. I, did, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what he said. Uh, I don't know that I'm that far down the road of gold being an alternative currency. Um, I mean, it's intrinsically value. I mean, valuable. There, there's no doubt about that. I, I, want, I want to kind of talk about one thing he said, the fiat currency. Here, here's what I'm sure of. And we'll go to the call in two seconds. Here's what I'm sure of. I mean, Greg and I agree some, disagree some. I don't have all the answers. I don't think he has all the answers. I don't profess to have all the answers. But but all of a sudden, the dollar not being the currency of preference 
the exchange currency of preference around the world is on the table. I mean, that's on the table. We put that on the table in 2008. For 100 years, the Fed had printed about a trillion dollars in fiat currency, currency not uh, attached or connected or hinged to something of intrinsic value. That became fiat currency. For 100 years, a trillion was the number. Since 2008, it's about 11 or $12 trillion. I mean, just kind of stick with me for a second. So we went 100 years and printed a trillion dollars of fiat currency. In the past 14 years, we printed in, in the neighborhood of 10 to $12 trillion of fiat currency. Paper money that really has no value connected to a hard asset, something of tangible value um, like gold. So, so Greg and I agree that all of a sudden, what one of the most crazy thoughts imaginable, that the dollar would cease to be the currency of preference in a global economy, you've got to put that on the table. The only reason it's not um, more prevalent than it was, and it goes back to Euro dollars futures market. The, Euro, the Europeans have screwed it up as bad as we have. I mean, in the name of expanding the economy or, or avoiding recessions or, um, you know, winning elections. I mean, there, there are a lot of different reasons you, you print money and inject it in the economy and it creates this. I mean, it distorts supply and demand. I mean, it, it really and truly, fundamentally, I mean, there, there are a lot of tentacles here, but it distort, when, you, when you inject that much liquidity into an economy, it, it devalues that, that, that currency. I mean, it has to. There's no question about it. Uh, it goes back to this much money chasing that many goods. I mean, it's kind of the oldest reasoning of, of economic theories. But, but, but all of a sudden, Greg agrees, I agree, a lot of you agree, that we have to put on the table with some degree of legitimacy that the dollar's days may be numbered. That's a bizarre and extreme position to hold, but I think the, the more radical stance to take is that that's not on the table. The dollar will always be the currency of choice. No, we, we gave up that position when we agreed in 2008 to do what we did and during COVID did it again. I mean, this, there, there, this was inevitable. There's no place to end up but the, 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 the global economy questioning whether or not the dollar is as sound as they always imagined it would be. Let's go to the phone. Next is Larry in the PD. More, Larry. Hey, good morning. Um, I, I think that one thing to answer the question, why are we not already falling apart or why is it not, you know, why it go higher is that uh, all recessions do have, they're based on sentiment. I mean, it's, it's, it's psychological, right? You don't feel good about your future, so you don't spend. You don't feel good about this, so you don't buy it. Prices are a little too high, so you wait it out. And then, you know, the local car dealership doesn't sell 100 cars this month. They only sell 85, and, and it just sort of trickles through the economy. But a lot of it's based on consumer sentiment. We talk about the animal spirits of the market, right? I think that part of the reason that we're not in a recession and we're not seeing the full outcome of it, we're just seeing these little harbingers of it is, is there's an election coming in 60 days. And I think a lot of people are thinking, well, whether whether we like to believe this or not, and whether the polls bear it out or not, they're saying, well, you know, if we can, if the Republicans can at least get a hold of one of the houses of Congress, maybe we can stop our out-of-control government from doing all of these stupid things. And the other reason that we're not as bad off as we are is remember that for the last, since 2008, what America has been trying to become is Europe. 
and Europe has made an absolute mess of it. We're thank God we're not as good at being Europe as Europe is, because Europe is in a ridiculous financial state, and unless the the good people of the world are going to decide that China is the place to park your money, as if they wouldn't immediately just steal it, forget misspending it, they would just steal it. So it's I think even now. And, and I know people love to warn, well, one day, you know, it used to be the Spanish Real, then it was the great British pound, and yes, currencies do ascend and descend in their, their influence in the world. But while the world is following the European model, which we all are, I don't see the dollar losing its status as a reserve currency. Who are you going to hand it to? What economy is big enough to churn like we do? The only one really is China. And nobody's going to trust China. So I think that the dollar is, is safe and, and that people are running to the dollar right now, only not because we're great, but because we're not as bad as everybody else. And I don't think – and I think that we're, we're hopeful that with the election we won't become worse. Okay, Larry, I, if, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying in theory. So, so if the dollar – if we're not the shining city on a hill, but rather the less dull city on the hill. I mean, that, that's kind of the argument you're making, and I agree with that from what I've read about what some of the European countries have done, some of the other nations have done. And you're right. I mean, the geopolitical adversary today is China, and they're not to be trusted. Nobody would convert their dollar into their, what is it, the yuan? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. No, no, nobody would do that. You wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Despite my pessimism about the American economy or the future of the American economy. But, but here's... There has to be a price to pay for what we've done post-2008. You don't know what that price is. I don't know what that price is. But there's no way, Larry, we get off the hook for what we've did since, to, you say, playing Europe. I don't disagree with that. But, but do we believe as a nation that we're immune to, to what eventually will happen? I mean, we've kicked the proverbial can down the road and down the road and down the road. That There will be a moment in time. Maybe we don't. Um, maybe we don't lose status as the, the most prized currency in the world, but there's got to be a price to pay for, for how we've agreed to allow the Fed to, to basically distort the economy to the point that we don't have recessions so political leadership can stay in power. Yeah, I think the word of the, of the, the year will be austerity. It's going to hit the government part. And the people that rely heavily on the government are going to be the ones that are going to suffer the worst. Savings rates are going to go up to 3 4 5%. You're going to be able to actually park your money in a really safe bank and make a, a, a noticeable return in the very short term. I think before long, we'll, we'll see 3 and 4% go back to, you know, CD rates are going to be up 45 5%. And so people who are wise with their money are going to do really, really well in that sense. And people who rely on the government are going to find the spigot drying up because the government is going to have to shift their spending towards debt service, which means social programs, subsidies for this industry and that industry are going to suffer. If you work for the federal government, you may be part of a layoff. So, yes, there's going to be prices to pay. And I think that's what you're going to see. And, and then, of course, Local government's borrowing costs are going to go up. Uh, corporate borrowing costs are going to go up. So you're not going to see this expansion uh, that you see. I don't know that we fall apart and go into some great big depression 
but uh, but I think that we well we started it. We said stagflation. I think I think we stay there for a while. Uh, but I think that the real price to pay is that the government, the federal government, is going to have to reckon reconcile their 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 books, and a lot of these subsidies are going to have to go away. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it, my man. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven takes Mondays to make Fridays. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I want to restate for clarity on an early Monday morning. You ready? I'm real frustrated about my Gamecocks and their lackadaisical play, <laughs> mm-hmm. but then I accept they played the best team in America, defending national champion Georgia. But I went back to work Sunday and tried to understand what we were going to talk about this morning, and I saw some of the futures market. Uh, I read some of this BNPL buy now pay later grocery app that was a thirteen billion dollar a year industry. All of a sudden, fifty billion. Dollars. My understanding of the economy is not scholarly. It's not academic in nature. I've been in family business since 1985 when I get home from school, and everything I learned is where the rubber meets the road. Um, I've been in a lot of different sorts of businesses, and once again, have never had any formal training nor educating on what the, makes the economy go. Uh, I know when you don't hear from your banker, that's a good day. And when you don't hear from your banker another day, uh, that's another good day. But I just sense, Rev, that there's something out there that we're underestimating. Uh, I, forget CNBC and Bloomberg for a second. I mean, they're sunshine pumpers, pimps, and prostitutes. I mean, they have a job to do, and I get it. I mean, Jamie Dimon understands some of these things much better than I, but he can't say but so much because he's a banker, and there's a lot at stake, and what he says moves the market or moves the meter one way or another, I just see and sense that there are fundamentals out there that that are are deep-rooted and unsustainable. Now, now where we end up and what the other side looks like, I don't have any idea, but but the activist Fed and the interjecting of capital in the way they did, we're going to answer to that. What what that answer looks like, I don't have any idea. But you don't print a trillion dollars for 100 years and then 10 or 12 trillion in 14 and there not be some consequence on the other side. So for clarity's sake, that's the argument I'm making. We could debate that all morning. Uh, Freehold gave me the uh, the lineup sheet this morning, and I found this very interesting. Uh, we have CEO and owner of the Rogers Healy Company, uh, Rogers Healy. Rogers, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Great. How are you all doing? So as part of this um, COVID response and, and I guess the economic adjustment that we're beginning to make, uh, 3.8 million renters are, are likely – maybe to be evicted from the um from their the, the the place they live and call home in the next two months because of some of the eviction moratoriums that were established during um COVID. You're in that world. Um tell us what you expect. Uh yeah the the short is I don't expect it to be that bad. I think that we have definitely seen some pretty significant adjustments with real estate. I've done this for almost 25 years, and I don't think anybody could have predicted what the last two years would look like. But, yeah, I think the music is definitely going to stop for some people. But, you know, with inflation also comes inflated salaries. And so the goal and the hope is that a lot of these people that statistically would normally, you know, since they get booted from their, their rental properties, maybe they can actually – make up for it. I think on the flip side, the downside for that is that that means they're going to probably be renting way longer than they had anticipated simply because the money that they were, you know, stowing away as a down payment is going to go pay someone else's mortgage. And I, I, again, but I don't think it's going to be as bad as people are projecting, even with rentals, you know, the average is going to be 2000 a month, which is 
seemingly crazy based off what, you know, we normally knew real estate to be. But last point I'll say is that a lot of people went and overpaid for land during COVID. And if they're going to build rental properties, whether it's apartments, single family homes, condos, townhomes, or whatever, they have to hit their numbers. And that's going to mean they're going to have to, you know, charge people a little bit more than historically they would have before COVID. Rogers, when the when the U.S. topped two thousand a month in uh, in what we call median rent in June, is that because the Fed infused so much capital into an economy and the I guess the rental market adjusted accordingly? Yes and no, but again, imagine if you know in two thousand nineteen someone was going to pay ten dollars a foot for dirt, and then you know peak twenty twenty one they paid thirty dollars a foot they got to make up for it. And that means they're going to have to charge people more than what they would have projected. And that's what people are used to. And I think the one thing also is that people aren't realizing that pre-COVID, the real estate rule used to be location. And now it's affordability. And affordability is getting redefined at a rapid, rapid pace, in large part because baby boomers are are cashing out and millennials are actually finally starting to qualify to, to make something happen. And that's just not what anybody was anticipating. And so, yeah, I think that it's a combination of everything, whether it's the perfect storm, good or bad. Last question. Do we expect a uh, a reformulating of what the American dream, the home ownership was declared the American dream. Democrats said it, Republicans right. said it. It was bipartisan. Both uh, political parties uh, pursued, I guess, the, um, the dream of owning a home. It seems to me, I've got three kids. Um, they're not as motivated to own their own home as I think I was at a similar age. Is, is that a cultural or societal phenomenon? I think it's sad. I think it's because a lot of people, you know, the millennials for the most part, you know, one way to describe them, you know, cliche is entitlement and entitlement and laziness are kind of one and the same. I'm not saying your kids, but a lot of people that I know, they, they don't have that drive because they don't think it's realistic. And I think that, you know, there's a lost part of just working your face off to be able to go and qualify to do something big. And so, yeah, whether reality is trumping people's dreams or people realize that if they want to be in the neighborhood they want to be, they're not going to build equity, it's definitely a problem. But I also think that's why places like Dallas and Nashville and Atlanta have had such a great run these last few years is that people that historically would want to live in cities like New York or L.A. or Miami, they're going to go somewhere else. And because of that, there's all new trends that are that are set. So you know, hopefully millennials turn the corner, which it sounds like it's happening a little bit as they, you know, get in their late 30s and 40s. But I, I do think we're going to be faced with a problem that, you know, normally America hasn't seen. And I think that owning a home should be everybody's dream. But I think right now the short-term dream based off these statistics is to not be in debt. And once people, you know, realize that, hopefully we get back to where we were when, when things seem to be a little bit more, you know, stabilized. Rogers, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You're welcome. You too. Take care. Got a, kind of an interesting perspective for someone in the real estate world. I, I want to say this. Now, this will be so um, non-eloquent. I don't know if that's the way. Uh, but, but trust me here for a second. So if there is a market, and if the market is dictated by supply and demand, I mean, that, that's kind of a, um, I mean, that's a variable to the marketplace, right? I mean, if Rev has a house, I want to buy it, but, but Freeho wants to buy it. I mean, you know, and there's... But, but here's what I argue, and I don't know how to argue this um, without confusing myself, much less you. If the economy is, is predicated upon a certain amount of capital and we, we give that economy too much capital, what are things really worth? How do we get back to a normal market? 
In other words, if there are X number of homes or X number of rental properties and X number of potential buyers of homes and renters of, of uh, rental property, and, and that, that market is dictated by a value of GDP. The, the, the GDP of America is big, but it's finite. I mean, it's not infinite. But, but all of a sudden, this GDP that's worth, I mean, let's just, for argument's sake, let's say the GDP in America is $30 trillion. But the, all of a sudden, there's $35 trillion or $40 trillion worth of capital circulating within that economy. We, we know we've distorted the economy, but, but how much have we inflated the prices and what are they really, really worth? And, and when, the, when the Fed decides to raise rates and begin quantitative tightening, how do we adjust? I mean, how do we, how do we not have price depreciation? How is a home, if a home is worth, let's say a home is worth $200,000, when the economy's $220 trillion or $30 trillion, and all of a sudden the economy's $35 trillion because of the Fed's activism, that house inflates uh, in, in some proportionality, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you would agree to that yeah. because you've got more spending power. You've got more buying power. Sure. Why? Because there's more money out here. So, so when we begin constraining the flow of capital, when we begin restricting the flow of capital, how do we, because I hear these real estate folks said, I don't expect asset depreciation. How? But isn't that kind of the goal of the tightening? Well, I, I mean, mean, everything is supposed to shrink? Yeah, but, but but stick with me for a second. So so how do we not have financial disaster if you, in an economy that is valued at $30 trillion, the Fed decides to put 10 more trillion out there. So there's $40 trillion. So Rev says that house was worth twenty. Well, the house is worth two hundred thousand at a thirty trillion dollar economy. But all of a sudden, the economy's forty trillion. It's not really forty trillion. It's fiat currency. It's not based upon the value. I mean, it, there, there is no tangible asset that that. It's just made up money. But all of a sudden, the made up money circulates with the real money, right? I mean, th- th- there's some sure. value to the economy. I mean, the, co- the the American economy, even in its worst day, is still an enormously valuable um, entity or apparatus. But, but and I'm not, I don't know what the number is, but I'm just arguing. For argument's sake, let's say it's $30 trillion. Here comes $10 trillion new dollars into the economy. Of course, that least asset appreciation or inflation. So so I hear these real estate folks, and I hear these car dealers, and I hear these, these land speculators saying, you know, I don't expect asset depreciation. How don't you expect asset depreciation? I'll say this. So um, Rogers talked about the, the earning power of a, an average American. So if the earning power of an average American is $100,000 a year in a $30 trillion economy, and it goes to $120 trillion in a $40 tri- excuse me, $120,000 in a $40 trillion economy, but we're going to take that $10 trillion back out of the economy, how does that $120,000 a year salary stay in place? I mean, where do you find that money, right? I mean, the Fed is going to quantitative tighten. The Fed is going to take $85 billion a month out of the economy. We're raising interest rates, so that increases the finance charge uh, of borrowing money. And we know how many, we know the, the, the public and private debt. So, so when, we, when the Fed takes that money out of the economy, don't we get a little bit poorer? I mean, don't, doesn't the average American? I mean, that, that money's not in play any longer. So in two months, there's $170 billion that we were fighting for that we're not fighting for any longer. So how does that person who was making 100 now is making 120 because we're rolling, you know, salary increases, wage increases. I mean, yeah, homes are going up and cars are going up. People can afford it because they're making more money. Are you? You're feeling richer. You sure you are. And the dealer knows he can charge more because this new money circulating throughout the economy. But is it even real money? 
I mean, I made a note to myself. This is as weird as can be, but I made this note six months ago. <laughs> I'll, I'll let Rev read it. It says, But there's really not that much money. There's really not that much money. There's never really been that much money. <laughs> That's it's, your note six months well, ago? It is. It's a note six months ago wow. that I made to myself. Wow. But there's really not that much money. I mean, I get that it is money. I mean, it's, it's, it's secured by the full faith and credit of our federal government. But, but it's put out there, and now it's being taken back. Some of these bonds are maturing. So some of these um, T-bills are maturing, and the government's not repurchasing those. So that money is coming out of circulation. So, so if you were making hundred grand a year and the economy was $30 trillion bucks, the Fed just pumps liquidity into the economy like crazy to make sure people can make their rent payments and make sure the businesses can keep their employees. Uh, you know, we can argue about the Keynesian side of that debate, but, but – how does that person making 120 not go back to making 100? If there's not but so much real money out there, I mean, the Fed is basically admitting we made it up. We just made it up because we thought we had to. So, so now we're kind of um, you know, we're taking that 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 fake money, we're that counterfeit money. We're, we got caught. We're taking it back out of the economy. So, how does the economy not hemorrhage if you start taking that capital and liquidity? back out of it uh, let's go to the phone here is bert in florence good morning bert well i don't know if this is helping or hurting it's just the whole thing's got me confused because it is backed by the full faith of the government but we're beginning to have less faith in the government so what i do i look around and i go uh, you know normally you would buy gold but you can't eat gold you can't live in gold and everybody and their brother is trying to sell you gold, which means what are they wanting? My dollars that they're telling me is going to be worthless. So I find myself every time there's any extra money at all, and we're still calling money the dollar, so there's something there. I find myself dealing around the table. I buy a little gold and silver. I buy a little, um, believe it or not, some, some uh, food. You know, put that back because you can at least eat that. I buy a little toward land, and I get a little cash, which is harder and harder to get, and I put that in the safe. So I've got this whole deal around the table, you know, kind of hedging every bet because we don't know what's going to come out on top. We have no way of knowing that, and that's a confused way to live. Thank you, Bert. I'm convinced <laughs> that the best way to move forward, make it and spend the hell out of it. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. I mean, there's so many things about this we can't control, there's so few of us who really understand it. I'll tell you where I've gotten in my personal life. I've gotten to a point of dedicating a certain amount of time to try and understand it. And I got to a place where I thought I was really beginning to understand it. And then I got totally lost. I mean, I got totally confused by, okay, I thought this was exactly where I was headed, but, but I've taken a big turn. I mean, there's, a, there's not a fork in the road. I mean, there's an octopus in the road. And there's eight different ways I can go, and I don't have a clue how to proceed. For um, for sanity and peace of mind, just work hard, make money, spend it, enjoy life. Thank the good Lord for your blessings. Uh, but but if you drive yourself, uh, and if you try to convince yourself that you understand it all, and 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 kind of can predict the future, I mean, I, I get being being you know frugal. I understand being responsible and conscientious, and I get all that. Um, but but why should you be so responsible when those controlling the currency of which you're basing your future on are totally irresponsible? <laughs> you see where I'm headed? Oh, yeah. I mean, True. you're at their mercy. 
I mean, the dollar you're saving, the dollar you're making is, is based, its value is based on the actions or inactions of somebody you have absolutely no control over. And that's kind of the, the, the weird frustration that I have. Bree says it better than I. I mean, if, 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 a, if a college dropout from a town with no stoplight can see this, how can those really, really, really smart economic minds not? They do. I mean, they know exactly the, the confusion. And, you know, they're, to me, they're trying to, I mean, there, there's a disaster inevitable. When, how, where, what, I couldn't begin to, to tell you what it looks like. Take a break. Back in a minute. Okay, Rev, you're my sounding board. You understand the track I'm on. You understand the road, the long and winding road that I'm trying to follow. I'm trying to follow you. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm breaking it down. I mean, I'm not scholarly. I'm not academic. But but if we're if we're you're bumming me out I during know that. quantitative easing. I mean, I asked you during the break to find out exactly what. I mean, I knew it was north of 20 tree, and I rounded off. It's somewhere between 20 and 25 trillion dollars. I mean, they're, they're, you know, the best estimate or guesstimate of valuing the country's GDP. Is to say it's worth somewhere between twenty and twenty-five billion dollars. Well, 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 trillion. I'm sorry. Well, when the Fed began buying about 120 billion dollars in bonds and, and and securities, mortgage-backed securities, I mean, they injected about 120 billion a month into the economy, right? Okay, and they did that for an extended period of time. Now they're going to begin. I mean, they they, they really started what three or four, five months ago, uh, tightening this tightening program that will. Um, it will withdraw. It was about forty-seven and a half billion. Now it's ninety-five billion. So let's argue for round off. Let's say we're taking a hundred billion dollars a year out of the economy via quantitative tightening. So in ten months, that's a trillion bucks. So if the economy's worth somewhere between twenty and twenty-five trillion, and the Fed prints ten trillion dollars worth of money, and that money makes its way into the economy in some way, shape, or form. Now I'm not arguing about whether or not it was intended to prop up asset prices. I mean, I've always said that. I mean, they're not doing it because they love me and you, right? <laughs> I mean, Jamie Dimon and Goldman Sachs and some of these other high-flying Wall Street executives, I mean, they're the ones in communication with the Fed about what needs to be done to do what? To make sure you can live a better life? No, to make sure helicopters can still land on top of the Goldman Sachs building in New York. So it was never intended to make mine or your life better. I mean, we kind of went along and got along, and we shared some of the benefit of the quantitative easing via... Uh, so some of the uh, mass giveaways the government decided to do, but but stick with me for a second. So so print 120 tree, it's 120 billion a month, uh, trillions after trillions after trillions after trillions make its way into the economy in some way, shape, or form. All of a sudden they decide that they're going to start this quantitative tightening program. Began with 47 and a half billion a month, and that's 95 billion. I think this month is the first month of taking tightening at 95 billion a month. So, so the point I'm trying to argue, here we go, G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu Grip 101. You ready? In a $25 trillion economy, it's worth X for you to come cut my grass. In a $35 trillion economy, what is it worth to get you to come cut my grass? The dishwasher at the restaurant, the construction worker at the, uh, at the job site. I mean, it, 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 it skews all of those numbers. It distorts all of those market forces. And, and all of a sudden... Do, do we not believe if we take out $100 billion a month out of the economy that there doesn't have to be some sort of adjustment? I mean, that's the intent of the Fed, right? I mean, isn't that what the Fed's trying to do? Curtail inflation? I mean, is there such a thing as wage inflation? Of course there is. So so the argument I'm trying to make is it's going to affect everything. I mean, do, do all of a sudden, I don't know when we'll decide this, 
But at some point in time, we go, hey, the guy used to cut my grass for $60. Now he wants $75 because he's got more business that he can say grace over. So all of a sudden, does the does that deal renegotiate back to 60 once we take the $100 billion a month out of the economy? It has to, doesn't it? Because it was never real money anyway. I mean, it was play money, monopoly money, counterfeited money that we decided to interject into the economy to make sure we didn't have a recession or a financial meltdown, knowing full well, eventually, we were going to take it back out of the economy. I mean, if somebody gave you $100 and said, hey, you keep this for a year, but in a year I'm coming to get it from you, is that real money? I mean, I just think it's it's real bizarre what we did in response to COVID and what we're having to do to get the Fed's balance sheet back in some semblance of um, of normalcy. 843-661-0937 is our number. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. And someone held on during the break. Let's make sure we go there. we got a guest here. Robert Norton is a candidate for elected office. want to make sure he gets plenty of time here. But let's go to our caller, and then we'll go to Robert. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Right now is the easiest way to explain inflation to even the simplest person. You know, at 8.3%, you take 100 and divide it by 12, and that's 8.3%. So one month's pay is what you're giving up to inflation. And you're talking about the uh, the Fed. You know, when they're pumping 5 to 6 to 7% into an economy, and we're only growing at like one and a half percent. I I I don't see any growth there. Plus, they count the federal spending into the GDP, and then they turn around and they borrow the money to pay the interest. I mean, come on, guys, <laughs> something's got to give here. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Well, I mean, well, you can get real confused trying to understand. I mean, if you don't have some sort of economic training or, or some sort of uh, educational background in these things, I mean, it get real confusing. Um, somebody texted me a second ago and said, I understand the, um, the the mowing the lawn illustration as good as anything. Rev and I were talking a second ago and try, kind of trying to rehash the conversation. So if the economy's worth $25 trillion, and, and based on that $25 trillion valuation of the entire American economy, it's worth $60 for Rev to get someone to cut his grass. All of a sudden, another $10 trillion shows up in the economy. That that guy cutting the grass um, it gets a little busier because everybody's got money. Um, Rev's willing to pay $75 if he had $400 in his account pre-COVID, and all of a sudden he's got $1,200 in his account now. Rev says, okay, I mean, I'll give you $15 more. So, so the, the point I'm trying to make is, what does the correction look like? I mean, if the guy that cuts grass goes from 60 to 75 and Rev's okay with it, because once again, he's got a little bit of that $12 trillion. The, the guy cutting grass got a little bit of that $12 trillion. We all got a little bit. Now, Wall Street got the majority of it. Wall Street and government. I mean, the Wall Street and the government agencies got the majority of that money, um, as they always do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Rev got a little bit. The guy that cuts the grass gets a little bit. He expects a little bit more to cut his grass. So so all of a sudden, the new normal for cutting Rev's grass is not 60, it's 75. So Rev pays the 75, pays it again and again and again and again. All of a sudden, the Fed start taking out 80 or $95 billion a month out of the economy. 
Rev's on balance goes back. It was 400. Now, I'm not talking about, we know what Rev is. I mean, Rev is an incredibly wealthy and independently wealthy man. So I'm just using him because right. he's the, oh, yeah. he's kind of the guy in the studio mm-hmm. with me. Yeah. Please understand that, that Rev is, I mean, he's not royalty, but he ranks right up there with mm-hmm. with royalty, well, financial royalty you. in America. You are funny. But but no, <laughs> does that does that, you understand what I'm saying now? So all of a yeah, sudden, follow. you know, you are getting a bit of that 120 billion a month. You, you were under, you were uh, enjoying the benefit of um, zero percent interest rates, or you know, your rates set on Prime Plus one or whatever it is. We I all mean, work. yeah, sure, okay. All of a sudden, that's gone. I mean, that sugar high, you know, so somebody extracting 120, excuse me, 80, 95 billion a month. You want that 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 market's going to correct, right? I mean, that market is going to eventually go correct. Of the sure, I mean that, that is to control inflation. It is to is to get the market back in a manageable to cool down the, the global economy to cool down the American economy. So all of a sudden, Rev's got to go back to the guy and say, "Hey, man, um, I need you to start cutting my grass for sixty dollars again." And the guy says, "I can't." Rev says, "Well, I can't pay you seventy-five. Th- that's the point I'm trying to make. What we had a market reality before the Fed's activism that that Rev and his yard man had a deal, sixty bucks. Here's all this new money that shows up. Rev gets some of it. The guy cutting the grass wants some of it. And the new normal is 75. And everybody's fine until interest rates start increasing, until the the Fed begins quantitative tightening, and all of a sudden that number has to go back to something more like 60. And the yard man says, well, I'm not cutting your grass. I mean, I'm not going back to where I was. You see where I'm headed? How many people understand quantitative tightening? I mean, if you went up and said, hey, man, Tell me what you know about quantitative tightening. I mean, everybody look at you know, like I don't know, I have no idea what it's you're talking about. Man. All I know is I was getting seventy-five dollars to cut the man's grass, and I ain't cutting it for sixty anymore. And I, I'm just concerned about those sorts of business arrangements that were so influenced by the Fed's activism having to be renegotiated. Because once again, there was never that much money anyway. It was counterfeit money. We were going to be caught at some point in time. We were criminals. The United States was running a criminal enterprise <laughs> and printing trillions of dollars that really and truly didn't exist, never should have existed. I mean, the Fed, I'll tell you what the Fed does. Here's their business model. You ready? Counterfeit money and cut checks. I mean, in essence, that's what they do. Things that most people go to jail for, the Fed does. Um, not every now and then, but fairly consistently, they're cutting <laughs> checks and they're counterfeiting Money. Robert Norton didn't come in here, all that quantitative tightening. And quantity. He said, he said, man, I just want to be in local government. I, I, don't, I don't want to be king of the world. I don't want to run the Federal Reserve. Robert, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Ian. How about you? So, so before you tell us a little bit about yourself, exactly what office are you seeking the support of, uh, of our listeners of? We're running for House Seat 55, House Seat District 55, um, currently in Dillon, over in Marlboro County. And that seat is currently held by? I thought it, I thought that's what it was. I, I I wanted you to say it and not and not me. Um, <laughs> you, you played football at Lake. Excuse me. You went to school at Lakeview. Yes, sir. Um, you, if you went to school, you had to play football. Yes, sir. Okay, yeah, yes, you're sir. not. A, you either do football or cheerleading. Yeah, Lakeview. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I played when Jules go, so uh, I know I, I really know what it's like to go to Lakeview and get your butt handed to you, uh, whooped up on. But uh, t- a little bit about yourself. Who is Robert Norton? Uh, I'm the assistant director at the Florence Regional Airport, so I work over here in Florence, South Carolina. Um, been there for about 18, 19 years, going on 19 years. Uh, like I said, I went to Lakeview High School, you know, small town. That's where I grew up, small town. I grew up in Fork, South Carolina, which is right down the road. Uh, I got a wife. We've been married about 23 years. 
Got two beautiful kids. One of them still going to Lakeview. She's a ninth grader at Lakeview. I got one that just enrolled in UNC Pembroke play football. So football, I heard okay. you talking about year. It's near and dear to my heart this morning too. Um, he broke his ankle the last game of baseball season Uh-oh. in Lakeview. So he's got medically, medically redshirted this year, but uh, hopefully next year he'll get back on the field. Okay. Yeah. Why do you want to be in the House of Representatives? Ken, that's a great question. Uh, it's probably one of the most hardest questions I've ever been asked in my life so far. Uh, to start with, I wanted to get in because I see some things that I wanted to do a little bit different. You know, had some people say, hey, can you run for us? We, You know, we'd like to have you in the, in the house. And the further I grow along in this candidacy, um, you know, I got that, that, that goal has changed. You know, the further I go it's I got in the first initial. So Robert North can change some things that he wanted to change some things that he seen needed to be different. And the further I go and the more I get to talk to people, you know, I got, I got some supporters now that really can't afford to give me nothing, but they give me $11 a month. That's what I got in this thing for, you know, I got in it for the, for the people that can't afford to do it, but they want to change. And and I want to be that change for them people. And you're running as a Republican. Yes, sir. That's a hard place to run as a Republican. What makes you think you got a chance to win where his Republicans historically have not? Well, we have, through this whole campaign, we have uh, made the analogy that this campaign is like David versus Goliath. I figured David had a chance against Goliath, so we picked up a few smooth stones and <laughs> we grabbed a slingshot and off we went. Um, and then luckily we've, we, with the health of uh, Verd Odom and Marlboro and Anthony Moore in Dillon County, the two Republican Party chairmen, they have rallied behind us. And um, we got Dennis Townsend elected as the first ever Republican on a county council seat. And, you know, we won 13 out of 19 precincts in the in the primary, which people are, are wanting to change. They just never had an option in Dillon County. And um, now they're going to have an option. Do you sense that people are looking for fresh faces, new energy, I mean, I, I've often said, if you give the Republican vote in particular a chance to vote for what is and what was or what could be, they're, they're going to vote for what could be right now. I'm not saying it's all about Trump, but Trump energized a certain part of our country into believing that, that a lot of the problem is those who have been there for as long as they have. Yes, sir. I, I agree. I agree. People's looking for, they're looking for a change more than they're looking for a different face. You know what I mean? They want, they want something different like us, you know, 24 years I was in high school 24 years ago, 25 years ago. You know, things are either the same or worse than they were 24 years ago, you know. But um, this isn't personal with you and Jackie. I mean, it's not, I, I, it's I, not I, I can tell that. It's, but not, it's not personal. I think I talked to you uh, at a uh, performing arts center event, if I'm yes, not sir. Yes, mistaken. Sir. It's, it's, it's not personal. I just got, I got meat in the game. I got kids from Lakeview. I got, you know, family. I, that's where I grew up. I want, I want our people to come back to Dillon County and Marlboro County and the edge of Ory County and Green Sea, which is all small towns. I want our people to come back to them communities, not have to move to Florence like I do to get a job, not Lumberton. You know, Dillon's on the same corridor as Florence and Lumberton. You go 30 minutes one way, you in a big city, 30 minutes the other way, you in a big city. Why can't Dillon be a big city, you know? And the district is what, Robert? I mean, walk us, for, for the listeners who don't know exactly well, if they have an opportunity to vote for yes, you, our, you know, our signal goes out that way a pretty good bit. But but you know what 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 communities what areas are included in this well, district? We have uh, McCall East McCall, and then it comes all through Dillon County. All of Dillon County is in the district now, and it goes up to Loris and cuts around Loris and goes all the way down to Longs. So it's a pretty long narrow district uh, now. So if um if someone wants to help Robert Norton, 
Uh, you've got about, what, 50 days until the election? 55 how can, days. How can they help you? Well, they can go on our Facebook page. It's Robert Norton for SC House Seat 55. We got a win red account on there. You know, they can they can donate to that. The biggest thing I tell everybody is I need all the prayers I can get, and I need all the support that I can get verbally. You know, um, like you've been talking about more than about economy. You know, a lot of people just don't have money to donate to campaigns anymore. If they do, it's great. It's it's needed. Unfortunately, that's the that's the beast of the analogy. You have to have money to run a campaign. Um, but I, I I believe it'll go a lot further for me if people get out, spread the word, and they got to make sure that their voice is heard on November eighth. Robert, you know? is there a website, an email, a phone number? I mean, if someone wants to communicate with you or contact, yeah, my make- phone number is eight four three six one six five two six four. Uh, you can call me anytime. That's my cell. Okay. You know, I'm I'm a firm believer. If if you got a question, call me and I'll come to your house and we'll we'll figure it out. You know. And and do the best you can. I, I want to make sure people understand. It is a um it is a Dillon County centric district, and Dillon just elected their first Republican to the city or county council. County council to the county council, and you want to be uh, I guess the re- first Republican elected to the state house. Yes, to sir. represent. Yes, sir. Um, Dillon County. Yes, sir. Okay. I do. We wish you well. Thank you, <laughs> thank, thank you, you, thank you for being here this morning. Wish your son better. Yes, sir. Um, get, get, getting him healed up. And um, uh, if you go to Lakeview, you got to play football. I mean, you can't go to Lakeview High School and not be on that, not be on that football team. Good luck to you, my man. Yes, sir. Thank and you. Good to see you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So I'm trying to boil this down and understand this whole economy thing you're boil talking it down, about, brother. Boil it down. All right. So are are you saying that basically all that money isn't real? Well, I mean, think about it. <laughs> I mean, if, if you if you print money with the intent to inject it in the economy, and you know that you're going to take it back out of the economy, is it real money? I mean, of course it's real money. But does I mean, when it, you got it, you could buy real sure, things with but, it, right? But it has such a distorting effect to economic reality. I mean, if you print $120 billion a month, which is what we were doing during COVID, and I'm talking about bond buybacks and mortgage security or mortgage-backed securities, I mean, the, the Fed got real activists. And once again, this has become somewhat normalized since 2008. Stick with me for a second. So for 100 years, the Fed counterfeited about a trillion dollars counterfeited i mean you know it would it would up and down but it had been flowing a little bit their balance sheet would have 300 billion then have 700 billion and then have you know 100 billion and then have 50 billion then it'd be you know 550 billion i mean it was there to kind of be a um a stop gap in some of these emergency situations and all of a sudden wall street found out they could abuse that privilege and instead of companies going bankrupt they could bail them out and instead of um recessions coming cyclically like they should and historically have we could avoid that um, to, to me, it's all about political power and political gain. Um, I don't want to run for office if I'm responsible for a recession because people understand recessions. I mean, we understand, Hey, I don't understand. I mean, uh, who was it asked me the other day? What is the technical definition of a recession? Well, I mean, historically it's been, you know, consecutive quarters, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Now we redefine that because they're talking about maybe or maybe not. We'll go into recession. Well, I mean, technically we're already in a recession. I mean, the GDP numbers are negative in consecutive quarters. So historically, but once again, um, who's worried about the truth? Who's worried about yeah. what histor- history they has always said? But but to, to your point, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm making the argument that that money was never real. Because the money was put out there to, to distort reality, knowing it was going to be taken back at some point in time. And I think we have 
positioned our economy in a very difficult place by, by, by having this false, false sense of security that um, there's all this money floating around. I heard this uh, a year ago. Hey, man, all this money's floating around in the economy. And I said, is it? I mean, is it real money? And this is an educated, smart guy. You know what he said? What do you mean? I said, well, I mean, you know what they're doing, don't you? That they're, they're injecting new money into the economy that didn't exist yesterday. I mean, it's not like we called up Fort Knox and said, hey, you know those 60 pallets of cash? I mean, let's get those in circulation. You know that reserve we have? You know that reserve we have back by all that gold we've got in lockdown in Fort Knox? Uh, this economy is on shaky ground. So take those pallets and put them on a truck and, and get armored cars to deliver all this cash. No, we just created. We don't print the money. We digitally create the money. And we got these preferred lenders on Wall Street, and they are the um, the conduits, the vessels and vehicles of which we get that account, that money out into uh, the economy. But yeah, I mean, I'm arguing that the money never existed, but because we knew it was going to be gone like a fart in the wind sooner than later. <laughs> I mean, we did. We we knew the Fed. I mean, the Fed always said, "Hey, we're here as a matter of last resort." But at some point in time, we'll begin this quantitative tightening. Now, here's the problem. We're raising rates and quantitative tightening in an already slowing economy. In other words, it's the, the, the genesis of the slowdown is not raising interest rates, nor is it the printing of money. The genesis, or excuse me, the extracting of capital. The genesis of the, um, the recession is I mean, just a normal recession. I mean, it, we, we were cyclically held or holding, excuse me, heading for a, um, uh, what do they call it, a soft landing uh, it's not. It's going to be a real hard landing. Um, does it bust the tires on the plane? I don't have uh, any idea. Do we have a call? Yep. Okay. Let's Nick, go there. Nick in Lexington. Hi, Nick. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, fellas. I have so much to say because I bounce around this idea all the time. The first thing I remember is seeing a cartoon before the uh, before the pandemic about how everything is on borrowed money. You know, our housing, we bought, you know, it's kind of like nuclear fusion. You know, when you're driving it out of me and three come out. So when you borrow money for a house, you employ all these people. And they borrow money for cars. And they borrow money for, the, for this and that. And, they, and, and it just makes our GDP explode. So I remember from high school that the Fed was all about the discount rate. And the discount rate was what they would loan money to banks at. And that's kind of how they got money into the system by you borrowing money and the T-bills and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, the other thing I know is that the actuary tables for all these pension plans were incorrect because the cost of health care has far exceeded what they projected as well as how long we live. So then 2008 happens, and we got so many people that are retired that cannot depend on the 401k. Did we lose him? 
Because what I know about old people is they vote. And I know the currency of Washington is votes. You know, and then we get to this pandemic, and it's, we're going to give all these people money, you know? We're going to close down all these small mom and pops. It was like it was the Amazon Walmart, you know, loan, so to speak. Did we lose him again? Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I'm sorry. Do we have Evan Brown with us? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, we got a lot of. Did we lose him or did we? I don't know. Okay. Do we have Evan Brown with us? Yes. Okay, Evan. Good morning. How that. are you? Good morning. Good morning, sir. Um, we've talked a lot about the economy. We've talked a lot about finance. We're changing, uh, shifting gears, and changing subjects on you here. Um, Evan, you're in Miami. The governor of Florida's made uh, a big splash with um, shipping, I guess, as a um, or you know, flying fifty migrants, illegal immigrants, to uh, Martha's Vineyard. Um, he said something over the weekend I found very interesting that they have an infrastructure in place and they're going to do more of this. What is the latest on DeSantis and the migrants? Well, I think uh, you, you, you've given us the latest right there, but there could be more. They, there could be more where this came from, as a turn of phrase. There might be more flights. There might be other buses. Uh, the state of Florida has already allocated $12 million for migrant resettlement to other states. Uh, especially when they are uh, either being brought to Florida or they're interdicted on the way to Florida. Uh, about four out of every ten of these newly arrived illegal migrants have stated their intention to get to Florida. That's a significant percentage of them. That's 40 percent of them. Uh, Florida is not a sanctuary state. Uh, it has uh, a little resources to uh, or, or, or little resources dedicated to handle large influxes of people who should not be here. Uh, and that is uh, who illegal migrants are. They are entering the entering the United States illegally uh, through uh, you know I, either um, you know they're crossing the border, uh, and they are presenting themselves perhaps to federal authorities who are choosing not to prosecute them but to put them into the immigration court system, but then give them transportation to the interior of the country, uh, and uh, and they don't appear for uh, the problems are that they don't appear for their immigration hearings. Uh, and uh, they're, and they're in the wind. Uh, so uh, uh, Florida has taken it upon itself to uh, at least uh, uh, try to interdict some of these people who intend to get to Florida and send them to other places uh, who have stated openly that they are willing to accept them by their nature of being sanctuary cities. One of them happens to be Martha's Vineyard, uh, which uh, uh, turned out that after uh, 50, all of 50 people were brought there, uh, they could not uh, care for them. Uh, and they quickly uh, engaged uh, the uh, Massachusetts State Guard to uh, uh, put them on buses and send them off to a military base in Cape Cod. Eben, having said that, um, there was not a lot of discussion at the national level about immigration, our nation's immigration policies. It does appear that Abbott and DeSantis, both um, governors of, of what we call border states, have forced the debate at the national level. Is that fair to argue? I think that's incredibly fair to argue, uh, and it's true. The uh, the border situation has not been rightfully discussed or, or thoroughly discussed by the federal government from federal authorities, the president on downwards, ever since President Biden took office. Uh, this, was a con- this was a problem considered uh, widely solved by the previous administration due to policy, 
uh, not just construction of a border wall, but also for things like Remain in Mexico, which uh, uh, encouraged, not encouraged, but mandated that people crossing the U.S. border to seek asylum uh, would not get it unless they applied for that asylum while in Mexico and uh, would agree to stay in Mexico. Uh, that encouraged people to simply not come at all and not make that trek up through Mexico coming from Central America, knowing that they would not be instantly granted access to the United States. Uh, and, and so that policy was immediately reversed upon the new administration coming into office. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it has resulted in, in millions of people crossing our border uh, illegally, and which is a crime. Uh, and then they are not being prosecuted with that crime, and they are instead being, again, directed to the immigration courts for hearings. Uh, but then, by and large, a lot of these people are being transported willingly to the interior of the nation, where they then don't go back to San Antonio for their immigration court hearings. In fact, that was a complaint that someone, uh, an elected official at Martha's Vineyard had, was that, well, how, why are these people being brought here? They all say they have immigration dates, immigration court dates in San Antonio on Monday, meaning today, the 19th. And, you know, other people saying, well, gee, isn't that a shocker? Uh, so, uh, anyhow, they were, again, the Massachusetts National Guard put them on buses and put them to, brought them to a military camp uh, in, in Cape Cod. Very interesting. Evan, thank you for your time. Thank you for the report. Have a great day. Kind of a shifting of gears there. I apologize to Neil. I mean, we had some confusion there. Uh, kind of a um, uh, what am I trying to say here, Rev? Uh, what do we call it here? One of these uh, just a miscommunication. Yeah, a miscommunication. On the and- it's, it's not. It's really a miscommunication on my fault. I mean, it isn't your fault or Frio's. <laughs> it's all my fault. A misunderstanding of sorts. I hope Neil can get back in touch with us. Actually, Nick, and he's he is back. On so the Nick line. is back. I'm sorry, yeah. not Nick, not Neil, but Nick. Is Nick back on the phone? I think so. Hey, okay, Nick, let's let Nick, let's let Nick continue um, his thought. How are you guys? We apologize for that, Nick. Our bad. Or my bad. Well, I have no idea where I stopped because I'm just a rambler. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, continue rambling because that's how I do it for four well, hours and, and people have well, a, become accustomed I to it. What you heard last. Um, <sighs> you were talking about, uh, well, I mean, obviously we're talking about the infusion of cash and the distorting right. effect it has on on the marketplace. So just kind of pick up anywhere, whatever your well, best points are, um, have at it. Well, the, the main thing is, is that our economy is really through borrowed money. Correct. And, and when we had the Fed, all they really did was do the discount rate. And that's how they throttled. Now we have all this quantitative easing. And now you have where Washington has told the Fed you need to bail. We got to bail out. We got to cut checks to all these uh, Lehman Brothers and all these people that, or we're not going to be. You know, it's going to crash our markets, and then our old people aren't going to have retirement. And then we have a pandemic, and we're going to dump all this money in. And now we have inflation and a recession at the same time. It seems like. How was that? Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. I'll, I'll try to go down this road with Nick. Um, and a lot of this is unprecedented. I mean, I don't care what anybody tells you. This is highly unusual. I mean, and I still think it goes back to 2008 when the Fed agreed to do whatever it took to avoid a recession. I'll give you an example. Explain to me why during the middle of a pandemic, the market goes up. 
I mean, there's no rationale there. Make sense. Sure, I mean, in a normal economic cycle, where winners and losers are agreed to or allowed to exist, there, there's nothing good about a uh, market, an equity market, when a when a pandemic hits. When a government is telling businesses they have to. Well, close. I'll give you a better example. Stick with me for a second here. When the government comes out with a good employment number, it's normally bad for the economy. Why is that? Good news is bad for the market. Why is good economic news bad for the market? I mean, that would be oxymoronic, wouldn't it? I mean, if you get good economic news, wouldn't that be good for the market? But it's not because good economic news means the Fed may not be as activist as we anticipated them to be. A good jobs report, a good whatever. I mean, whatever economic report, I mean, earnings report. I mean, it's all about the Fed. And I think they have so, I mean, maybe I overstate this. Maybe I, maybe I'm too um, consumed by what the Fed does or does not do. But as you graph and chart, it's kind of unusual. Um, When you get good economic news, the market sells off. And the reason the market sells off when you get economic news is because the Fed is going to be less inclined to do their thing. So I think when Nick says it's all predicated upon what the Fed will do. So the, the markets are betting on not good economic news, but rather bad economic news in anticipation of the Fed not allowing that bad economic news to stay the norm. In other words, if there's bad economic news, the Fed will do something about it. But they always have, haven't they, since 2008? I mean, any bad news that comes down the pike, I mean, they know Goldman doesn't need bad news and J.P. Morgan doesn't need uh, bad news. And I think it's it's real weird. So the Fed gets bad news. Excuse me. The markets get bad. We get a bad job report, bad earnings report, and the market goes up. <laughs> and I'm going like, <laughs> to hell. I mean, why is the market going up when they just had a nasty, nasty job report or a nasty, nasty, you know, earnings report? Well, I mean, the reason the market goes up is it knows it's Fed is in its back pocket. And here's the question I pose. And I don't know the answer to this. Nick doesn't know it. Larry doesn't know it. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows the answer. What is the true value of the market? I mean, Wall Street today is, is, is once again kind of in correction mode. I mean, I've not looked recently, but the futures were down about 280 or 90 uh, points. It sold off, what, 1,200 points one day last week. What would the Dow be today? What would the S&P be today if not for the activist Fed? I mean, if the Fed were neutral, if the Fed didn't have $9 trillion on its balance sheet right now, I mean, the Fed has $9 trillion for 100 years, cumulatively, a trillion dollars. Today, they have about $9 trillion. What would the value of the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average be if not for $9 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet? I mean, that, that's kind of an interesting, um, and here's what I believe, and this is a little bit scary. How? What percentage of retirees in America need that, that market to perform at four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or, or 10%. And if we get back to this um, natural correction of the market, I mean, if the Fed says, look, we can't do it anymore. I mean, we got to let some of the animal spirits of capitalism take over. I mean, we've, we basically abused our privileges. Uh, we, we, we shouldn't have, we should have never did what we did in 2008. We certainly shouldn't have done what we did in 2021 or 20. When the pandemic struck, we're going to we're going to go back to a position of neutrality. What would the market be today if the Fed reestablished a position of neutrality only in an emergency, 
only as a means of last resort. That basically means war. I mean, if the government doesn't have enough money to buy equipment to fight a war with, we're going to print money and loan it to the government, and the government will battle, will fight in the name of national security. But all of a sudden, GM failing or not, Ford failing or not, Chrysler failing or not, became a, a matter of national security. People losing their job became a matter of national security. You know, whether we get a vaccine or not became, I mean, we treated everything like war. And we normalized this. So, so once again, I'll ask you, what would your 401k be worth today if the Fed didn't have $9 trillion on its balance sheet? You don't want to know. Back in a minute. See, the beauty of this argument is if you want to talk about the price, what it should cost for Rev to get his grass cut in a $25 trillion economy or $35 trillion economy, or if you want to talk about FedEx being the um, a great barometer of what the economy is, where it looks like we're headed, or if you want to be sophisticated and talk about the euro dollars future market, then let's have at it. All here. Right? Let's All have here. at it. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar, which is it you want to talk about, Charles? Well, first of all, I want to say true value is a hardware store, and there's no accounting firm in America that can answer your true value question <laughs> uh, because nobody knows. Uh, all the uh, first, I'd love to see the United States Border Patrol adopt the deportation policies that the sanctuary city of Martha's Vineyard adopted. Uh, that worked out pretty well. I understand they got rid of all of the illegal aliens except one. Apparently, one of them in Martha's Vineyard produced a fake Hawaii birth certificate, and they uh, they allowed him to stay. Um, <clears throat> I want to respond to something that Dale said a couple of hours ago about uh, the Democrats are responsible for the shape that we're in now, and the Democrats are responsible for what we have in Washington now. I'm just going to say Dems are going to dim, and they're going to vote for the Democratic candidate, and they've always voted, excuse me, Democrat candidates, nothing Democratic about them. The, the Democrats are going to vote for the Democrat candidate. The reason we're in the shape we're in right now is because of, um, Ken, you and I have a, have a friend that's, a conservative Republican who enthusiastically supported Biden because he couldn't stand Trump. The never-Trumpers and the independents who couldn't stand Trump's tweets are the reason we're in the shape we're in right now, not the Democrats. Democrats always vote Democrat. They're not responsible. I blame the never-Trumper Republicans, and I blame the independents who couldn't see the forest for the trees. Have a great day. Thank you, Charles. I mm -hmm. appreciate that. You know, I, I've thought a lot about that. I've actually tried to articulate in words, in the written word, some of my feelings about that without being personal. Because I've got friends, as Charles does, i got many friends who jumped the fence, so to speak, and felt that Biden was less dangerous than Donald Trump. Every political energy requires an equal and opposite resistance, or it gets its way. If, if the media has transformed into the propaganda arm of the American political left. If academia is generating um, liberal after liberal after liberal, and, and for, you know, let's not argue they aren't. I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, I love my Gamecocks. Charles loves his Tigers. But I think Charles would agree the majority of people who graduate from Clemson to Carolina come out with a very different set of political values than they did when they went there. I've tried really hard to stay on top of my daughter and, you know, in anticipation of this uh, eventual indoctrination attempt that always happens, no matter if you're in the, I mean, we argue about the ACC and the SEC and the B, it doesn't matter. I mean, let's accept that colleges are churning out a high percentage 
of um, aids and assistance to the liberal cause. The Republicans are the only hope we have. I mean, if you can't count on the media to be objective, you can't count on academia to be objective, that they're powerful forces in our political discourse, but you can't count on them. The only, the, the only hope we have is in an invigorated, a reinvigorated Republican Party that stands steadfastly against um, liberal notions and argues for conservative principles and values. I mean, that's the only chance we have. And, and, it, and it's bizarre to me that someone who calls himself a Republican, if you're faking it, I get it. But if you're genuinely, sincerely committed to limited government, lower taxes, powering the private sector, or empowering the private sector, there's no way you go there. I mean, it was reckless and careless for Republicans to say, I think this guy is less dangerous than that guy. I mean, I understand um, not liking Trump. I get it. I mean, I, I certainly understand the bombast, and I've said this a million times, the narcissism and the, the, the New Yorkerism, so to speak, within. But there was no good reason to give Joe Biden the keys to the liquor cabinet if you genuinely believe in limited government. Now, if you say you do but don't, then you're a fraud. And I mean, there's a place in politics for frauds, believe it or not. In fact, there's a, there's a, um, there's a generous path of prosperity for many uh, people who are fraudulent by nature. But, uh, but Charles is right. I mean, it, it's not the Democrats who uh, we, you know, we, we owe this debt of gratitude. Yeah, thank you, Lincoln Project, Yeah, I mean, thank example. you, Lincoln Project. Thank you to the, um, uh, yeah, the, 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 the never-Trump element within the Republican Party is the most selfish movement I've ever seen up close and personal. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. John in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Oh, yes, sir. Good morning, Art. Uh, I've got a question about the – I got a um, um, a randomly selected U.S. Census Bureau uh, questionnaire in the mail last month, and they, they're requiring me to send it in. It's a 43-page questionnaire. And I'm just wondering if there's anybody in your audience or other people in your audience that's got this stuff. And what they stated in the paperwork is it's a random selected uh, questionnaire. Uh, and it's, they also said it's, uh, it's the law to send it in also. And a lot of the information in this survey, which is a 43-page survey, is a lot of personal information and financial and other, other items. And I just don't want to send it in, and uh, but they, they said it's required by law. I'm just wondering if you have any input on that or any information. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. I don't have any at all. Um, maybe somebody listening to the show would know, you know, is there a follow-up? Remember we talked a good while back about um, some of the uh, census inaccuracies about overstating population in blue states, understating population in red states. There's a conspiracy going on out there somewhere. <laughs> Um, you know, what is your obligation to mail that in? I don't have any idea. I, um, it sounds to me like it's a random follow-up as part of this, I guess, accounting. Uh, it's not a forensic accounting, but more of a um, an accounting mechanism. I mean, there's a fancy word for it because we read about it. Remember a while back we did a story on um, the um, the overcounting in blue states, undercounting in some of the uh, some of the red states. But but, sir, I could not begin to tell you nor advise you on what to do. I mean, I can be as good old boyish as you'd like and say, damn, if I'd fill it out and send it back. <laughs> but I'm certainly not advising you um, to do that. 43 questions, 43 pages of question, some uncomfortably personal. Um, first of all, I'd make sure it's legit and not something that appears to be associated with the census, but really not. Now, I was thinking about that when I'm telling you it out loud, but you know how your brain multitask. So I'm thinking about 
man, I would be real careful not to give my information to somebody other than the government. And, and, but I'm, I caught myself saying, <laughs> but. who would I, yeah, is there a business out there in the world that I would rather, or, or, you know, be more unfavorable about having my information than the government? I mean, that's kind of where a lot of Americans are. I mean, you know, they don't trust corporate America. They don't trust the mafia. They don't trust, you know, the Catholic church. They don't trust, but they really don't trust their government. It's almost like a sliding scale of a trustworthiness or not at the bottom it's always been politicians and car dealers and i mean you've heard the jokes but but it's almost like now the fbi the doj some of these government administrative states are less trustworthy than anybody else on the planet 8436610937 let's stick here for one second and go to the um something's interesting about this article and i knew i'd read it in bloomberg a good while back but um someone texted a second ago and said well china owns all the debt China owns less than a trillion dollars of government debt, or of our government's debt. Japan's the largest owner of um, U.S. debt at about $1.2 trillion. I think foreign nations owe, or excuse me, own about $8 trillion of the $31 trillion in government debt. The rest is held by the public. Um, but there's there's got to be some creative accounting here, because when you read um, you know, the, like I said, Japan, 1.2 trillion, uh, the four countries with the largest U S debt, China at about 967 billion, the UK at 615 billion Luxembourg. Wow. 307 billion to Cayman islands at about 304 billion. But then you begin really breaking it down and here's where it gets confusing. It's not confusing how much debt is owned by foreign governments. I mean, it's not, it's pretty, um, easy to, to comprehend and illustrate but when you start sliding down this um this debt held by the public, and they've got asterisks everywhere, consists of the national debt held by any person or entity that is not a U.S. federal government agency. That's according to the Treasury Department, um, corporations, domestic individual investors, lake or st- uh, local or state governments. And, and then it's got, in a real interesting way, the Federal Reserve Bank. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's categorized as a, you know, a holder of debt, but it's just, it's weird the way they, they aggregate this number, $24.5 trillion in debt by, once again, uh, corporations, domestic individual investors, local or state governments, foreign investors, foreign governments, other entities, the Federal Reserve Banks. And, and it's, I mean, I'm not a dummy. I'm certainly not as astute as some are. But when you start trying to understand the Federal Reserve Bank and, and the amount of debt and how they categorize that debt, you start scratching your head. You really do. And I'm telling you, Rev, if you're a fairly conservative Republican with a libertarian streak in you, you begin, what, what is, I mean, what, how much debt does the Fed really own of America? But they say right now their balance sheet is about $9 trillion. But how much trickery or trickerization is involved uh, in that, and I go back to this Article Five, you know, uh, Convention of the States. If if I were in charge of that movement, and I mean this sincerely, as much as I believe in a balanced budget amendment, as much as I believe in term limits, if I could have one shot at the Convention of States and only one amendment to the Constitution, it would be abolishing the Federal Reserve. Because I think if you abolish the Fed, the government has to budget, right? I mean, if they don't have the luxury, I mean, once again, guys, the preeminent superpower on the planet 
I mean, its way of paying its bills today is to basically appropriate money it doesn't have. The Fed buys that debt with money they don't have, but they create the money out of thin air. I mean, that's, that's the financial model of the preeminent superpower on the planet today. So what if you took the Fed out of the equation? What if the government, what if Congress met today and its job was to appropriate X number of dollars and they knew how much was incoming, right? I mean, they are how much collections were. We got this much in sales tax, this much in income tax, this much in that tax and this tax. And, you know, together we've got, you know, four and a half trillion dollars to allocate and appropriate. There is no Fed. Take Fed out of the equation. What would the political leadership in America today, both Democrat and Republican, be forced to do? They'd be forced to budget. Right. They, they would like be most forced. Of the states have to do. You, you better believe it. They'd be forced to sit down and say, hey, guys, we got to grapple for a second because we've only got four and a half trillion dollars coming in and, and we're thinking about spending five point four trillion. Only four and a half well, I mean, trillion. The, the absurdity of that. But I mean, that, really and truly, that's kind of where we are. So, so when our when our when our outflow is four point five, excuse me, five point four. And when we got, you know, four and a half coming in, I mean, there's a $900 trillion, $900 billion deficit there. So what happens when, when, when the Congress can't write that check? When you take the Fed out of the equation, I think you're going to get much more competent political leadership, and I know you're going to get a, um, a more sound financial reality of what we're dealing with. So, so I think the Fed really and truly leads to a balanced budget because if you can't deficit spend – I mean, if the Fed doesn't play the activists that they, I mean, they can still sell debt, right? I mean, the government can still sell debt. Are you going to sell, are you going to buy government debt at 1%? I mean, if you got a million dollars and somebody says, hey, man, you want a real secure investment? Yeah, because I don't want to play the market. I've got this, um, I've got this government debt that I'll let you buy and it gets a 1% return. I need a better return than that man. You see where I'm headed? I mean, mm-hmm. it would force the government to really operate. In a uh, in a more effective and, efi- and efficient way, but the Fed is kind of like this um this this wonder ghost from from somewhere <laughs> doing something that nobody really clearly understands. And the reason I'm talking about the Fed today is, guys, we are almost seeing the beginning. I mean, I'm convinced you of that. that. Yeah, I, there's no question about it. I mean, I think some of the indicators will be lagging. I think some of the GDP numbers, some of the market reactions, uh, the FedEx number was scary. I mean, I, the FedEx number should freak everybody out who has any understanding at all about the economy because, once once again, FedEx does not represent the entirety of the economy, but I think it is a great reflection of everybody else's business. UPS sold off by 5%. Um, give me two companies in America today that more reflect where this economy is probably headed than FedEx and UPS. I mean, we live in a very – we know how dominant e-commerce is. I mean, they, they rev order something for the radio station, either a FedEx or UPS truck, bring it here, right? You order something today. Uh, it doesn't matter if you order online or not. I mean, it's, I like to hear people say, well, FedEx and UPS are strictly, no, I mean, it, it, it is a lot, I mean, a lot of their growth has been online shopping and, and e-commerce, but, but they ship things. I mean, Rev calls a, you know, he calls a, a radio station equipment supplier and says, I need you know, two transmitters, and I need an antenna, and I need six mics. I mean, that wasn't purchased online, but but some truck shows up here normally, a brown one or a white one with FedEx on the side. I just think that is a very, very accurate reflection of where everybody else's business is. FedEx has some macro and micro problems, uh, but even if UPS is perfectly run, 
their stock is down or sold off about 7%. And I just think that strongly suggests to me that we're heading to a global recession. A global recession while we're raising interest rates and quantitative tightening. How does that not have the utmost negative outcome? I mean, give me a reason to not believe that we're heading. And I told Ref six months ago, I think this thing gets real nasty toward the end of this year, the balance of next year. What sort of, and here's the problem in now in 2008. In 2008, the Fed only had a trillion, really less than a trillion dollars on its balance sheet. I mean, it began with $800 billion. So, so there were a lot of um, uh, tools in the toolbox, so to speak. I mean, Bernanke had a lot of flexibility. Who was the um, Fed chief? I mean, I don't remember Bernanke. I mean, he was the head of the fair. He followed Greenspan, right? Yeah, okay. So that would have been uh, Bernanke. So Bernanke had a lot of room to run, so to speak. He had a lot of um, tools in the tool chest. And he could kind of do, and he was a great student of the Great Depression. And I mean, he didn't believe the Fed was activist enough, but but he kind of set the standard. He set the standard for what the Fed does when it seems bad economic news is headed our way. So we went from a trillion dollars in a hundred years to twelve or fifteen. Ah, let's be a ten or twelve trillion dollars in the past fourteen years. Um, abolishing the Fed would be unbelievably bloody for a while. I mean, it would, it would be, I mean, it would be so nasty and unbelievably vile. And I mean, the the consequences of finance would probably freak everybody out, but we would be better on the other side, wherever the other side is, we would be a better nation. Had we never created a fed in particular, had we not allowed the fed post 2008 to basically distort the, the greatest economy on the planet. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in the PD. Hey, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, this might have been a, one of your greatest lines ever. They're cutting checks and they're, count, they're counterfeiting money. Is that basically what you said? That's exactly what they're doing. I, tell I mean, you I what, stand man, by that. I remember back when, when we were young dudes back in the 80s, there was a song called Money for Nothing, You Chicks for Free. And that was about the rock stars. Well, guess what? These politicians, these hedge fund managers, they think they're the rock stars now. And I'll give you guys – I'll tell you how to cut a check back in the day. You would just go to a grocery store or something, eat a little bit of cash. You'd buy a pack of ham back in the day for about 3 bucks. Uh, you write them a check for 28 bucks. you get $25 cash. Uh, but thank God you had direct deposit on Friday to cover it. And see, the sad part about this, the taxpayers is the direct deposit in this scheme. So let's hope, let's hope we, you know, we have the taxpayers, and as long as we, they can get that money, they're going to run this scheme. But I want to get back. Again, you talking about the, the Georgia football game over this weekend. 1982, I had the great opportunity to, to see Herschel. He came to uh, williams Bryce. In 1982, and, you know, I give the Gamecocks credit away back then. They actually, they didn't get blown out. They got beat 32 to 18. But I'm looking at how the, the world's changed since then, and, uh, and I'm a big Herschel fan. Uh, Democrats, uh, their senator was Sam Nunn. So think about how things have changed since then uh, as far as politics. And, with Herschel, God, I wish he could have an advertisement 
where he could superimpose uh, Chuck Schumer's head on Bill Bates' body and just say, bam, I'm going to knock these guys out. And, and I would love to hear him say one day, my name is Herschel Walker. I'm not a professional talker. I'm a man of action, and I'm going to get things done in the U.S. Senate. Leave you at that. Thank you, David. Herschel's going to win. Do you think so? And I'm not sure it's because of Herschel. I think Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, I think Herschel's going to ride the coattails of Kemp. I think Kemp's going to beat Abrams by four or five or six points, and I think Walker beats Warnock by two points. I think it's a dead heat outside of Kemp beating Abrams, and I think really and truly they're tightening up. I think Georgia really did a good job. The Republicans in Georgia, Charles and I have been critical of Republicans a second ago. I think the Republicans in Georgia deserve some credit for making it much more difficult to cheat in an election. I mean, if they're going to steal it in Georgia this time, they got to be real good at it. I mean, they're, they're going to spend a lot of money in Georgia. There's no doubt about it. And Walker will get outspent. Kemp will get outspent. But, but I, you know, I went back, actually texted with Robert a little bit yesterday about Masters. There's a poll that just came out that has Masters, I think, two points behind. In, uh, it's a Trafalgar poll that has Masters. It was released Saturday or it might have been yeah Friday or Saturday. But anyway, it's an Arizona poll. It's Masters down two, but has Kerry Lake up four. So I asked Robert, I said, Robert, how is Masters running behind Lake four percentage points? And he said, I'm not sure he is. What do you mean you're not sure he is? Masters is the epitome of the Trump candidate. Lake is not said, I think the election was stolen. Not, not in an advertisement. I mean, she has said these things, and she's been endorsed by Trump. And we know the Trump phenomenon. I mean, it cuts both ways. But, but, but I saw the Trafalgar poll that has Masters basically running six points behind Kerry Lake. Um, this is kind of interesting. Robert believes that the Republicans winning the governorships is as important as the Republicans winning uh, some of the seats in the Senate. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? I'll give you an example. I don't think – we'll try to get him on this week. I mean, he's already agreed. I just don't know what time and date. But I told Robert, I said, Robert, it seems to me I mean, as a former candidate and someone who believes he has somewhat of a political instinct about him, it seems to me that DeSantis is clearly, clearly the guy outside of Trump that we need to run for president. And Robert said, I'm not so sure. I think he might could be more effective being the lead governor, the lead conservative Republican governor, the America first governor. Let's stop saying conservative, the America first governor. So I went back and looked. And since August 2019, here's an interesting statistic that I think our listeners will find a bit interesting. Since January of 2019, Ron DeSantis has raised $177.4 million. In that same period of time, Donald Trump has raised $130 million. By comparison, Mike Pence has raised $18 million. So... Is DeSantis at a point in his political career that he rivals Trump? I never thought he would, but I think I was wrong. I think the sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard was so Trump-like without the, the bombast, without the, uh, the, the negativity, um, highly effective in forcing the national media to discuss immigration. I mean, I watched some of the Sunday morning shows yesterday. It was all about immigration. I mean, that, you know, it's all about human trafficking and kidnapping and pawns in a game and, you know, DeSantis and, 
and uh, Abbott are the worst kind of human beings in the history of mankind. The, the but the I can tell you what, the Department should sue them. And but I can tell you what, they spent about half their time talking, about, talking it. about it. You better That's believe why it was it. brilliant. And as long as um, it was, you know, um, Brownsville, Texas's problem. You know, and the poor people of Brownsville, Texas, had to work with it and deal with it, and, and so, no problem at all. But all of a sudden, they show up in Martha's Vineyards, where the rich, white, educated, tyrannical do-gooders are in charge. And I think Larry nailed it last week. Let's give Larry credit where credit's due. They want you to live under their rules. They just would rather not live under them themselves. I mean, that's in essence what they're arguing. So um, let's turn every town into a border town. I mean, if we're not going to secure the border, and I think DeSantis said this Saturday, we now have an infrastructure in place. We know how to do this, is what he's saying. We know how to do this. We know how to get 50 or 60 people in a bus, 25 or 30 on a plane, and we know how to send them to Martha's Vineyard. We know how to send them to New York and Chicago and some of these other sanctuary cities. Either you are or you ain't a sanctuary city. And if you are a sanctuary city and unregistered um, and undocumented aliens show up, it's your job to take care of them, right? I mean, that's what you said yeah. you wanted you know, everybody in America to be for. So here... I mean, have at it. It's what you signaled to everybody. And I'm telling you, Rev, I would have a caravan of buses and a fleet of airplanes 24-7, nonstop, exporting these illegals from the place they crossed the border, from the place they've been, um, uh, what about surveyed, I guess, to some degree. I mean, they, they declare status. They're, they're, they're given an assignment, a status assignment. Uh, asylum seekers, I think, is what the majority are. And I hear some of this Venezuelan stuff. Uh, but but no, I mean I'd have a fleet of of planes, and and just a, a convoy of buses, one after the other after the other, and they would be on their way to Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Martha's Vineyard. I think Martha's Vineyard is the greatest illustration because it it really and truly epitomizes the tyrannical do-gooder, the Northeast liberal elite, who's also a tyrannical do-gooder. That's the people. We need to send a message to. They don't mind Hispanics as long as they're pushing lawnmowers. They don't mind Hispanics as long as they're picking their grapes for their wine. But they don't want them living up so close and personal, right? <laughs> they got them out of there in a hurry. You better believe it. Put them in a, some kind of army base, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, give, give the liberals credit. They want you to deal with it a certain way, but they'll deal with it. Let's get those nasty folk, those, those people we can smell at Walmart, Let's get them away from here. There's a nice military base in Cape Cod that they'd be far more comfortable. I, there would be a plane landing. Every time a plane landed O'Hara or Hartsfield in Atlanta, there'd be a damn plane full of 50 migrants landing in Martha's Vineyard. I can assure you of that because there's no road to Martha's Vineyard. No. I mean, it's a ferry boat or a plane ride. And I would, I mean, it would be like Pearl Harbor. I mean, there would be a plane and then another plane, and then another plane, and then another plane. And I tell those tyrannical do-gooders, deal with it. Deal with it. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. Um, I, th I think we're getting there. I think uh, we're slowly, slowly progressing where – your Mitch McConnell's, uh, your Lindsey Graham's, um, that rhino Republican that we know's out there is becoming a smaller and smaller and smaller group. And I think you're starting to see some fight back on that. Um, 
but I think we're 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 evolving to that way. Now about your uh Gamecocks from early, early this morning. At least they had their priorities in check. Because, you know, we had to have that Title IX uh, presentation in between the first and second half that caused the delay again. And I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me of that. Mm-hmm. Rev and I were talking about, yeah, Beamer, I, I guess, had to apologize to the call him saying, get the people off the field. Well, you're there to what, play a football game. There, there's not 83,000 people there to celebrate Title IX. I'm sorry. I mean, I don't know anybody that hates women. I don't know anybody that doesn't want women competing, but 80,000 people didn't go there on that Saturday to celebrate Title IX sports. I mean, as much as Don Staley loved that to be the case, and as much as some of the woke establishment uh, administration of the university would love that to be the case, most folks in Section 305 and Section 106 and Section 301, they ain't woke. They're there because they love Gamecock football. They're there because Gamecocks are playing Georgia. They're not there to be force-fed a celebration of Title IX. And I don't understand that. I mean, for the life of me, I don't run a university and there's a reason. I mean, I would not tolerate or stomach or put up or, 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 or I just, there's no way I would do that. I mean, I can tell you this. If I were in charge, I'd have said, look, guys, there's a place in time to celebrate Title IX. I understand that I, this isn't Ken's University. This is the University of South Carolina. And I understand that I don't get to run it the way I want to run it all the time. But I can tell you this, the national cameras are rolling. The number one ranked team in America is here. Our stadium is going to be full. It's going to be energetic. It's going to be enthusiastic. Let's celebrate Title IX next week or the week after or or the week after that. Uh, When we not, when when this much of America is not paid, there's no way I'd have gone for that. I mean, there is no way. But somebody has to allow that to happen. And it really goes back to my Facebook post from yesterday. Um, I'm as big a Gamecock fan today as I was Friday. I mean, I'm too far down this road. Got too many miles on this train. I mean, I can't get off now. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm, it's my life sentence, I guess, to some degree. You're invested too but, but, far. But Rev, my frustration, and I want to reiterate this, my frustration is not about Saturday. I mean, I've told you this. My frust- I mean, who didn't see that coming? Really? I mean, the defending national champions have recruited at, at a level that, I mean, like Clemson and Alabama. I mean, they've just recruited at a high level. They've got good coaches. They've got a, a sound program. Um, who didn't see that coming? I understand, you know, a hope and a prayer. I understand a, a wing and a prayer. And that's really my complaint. It's not about what happened Saturday at Williams Bryce. It's about 50 years of, of basically crossing your fingers and hoping for the best every beginning of football season. The the University of South Carolina has an amazing um, fan base. Clemson has an amazing fan base. Both schools have um, unbelievable facilities. The commitment that the universities have made to what these um, these capital, what they call CapEx, capital expenditures, on, you know, a football operations building and a pr- indoor practice facility and enhancements and amended improvements around the stadium. Yeah, fancy new lights, well, I mean, ribbon lights boards, and that towel thing. Systems. You know, yeah, I saw somebody on Facebook or Twitter said, at least y'all got those lights and that towel thing. Yeah, I saw that. You know, it's pretty impressive. Um, but, but no, t- take Clemson to Carolina, right? I mean, let, let's do this real quick, and then I'll shut up. So you've got, you, you've got two universities. Um, one's about 40% bigger than the other. But, but but both are, you know, research universities, state-funded universities, respected universities. You, you got, you know, both programs have made a commitment to football. Both programs have rabid fan bases. 
Both programs are in the top 20 when it comes to fundraising. Both programs are in the top 10 when it comes to, I mean, you know, facility upgrades. One program demands and holds people accountable to expectation. The other just apparently does not. And that's my complaint. It's not It's not one Saturday afternoon at Williams-Brice when the Georgia Bulldogs come to town and just boat race, you know, my beloved Gamecocks. It's the fact that I go into every football season on a wing and a prayer, crossing my fingers and hoping for the best. And the reason I'm crossing my fingers and hoping for the best is because I have no faith in those who are responsible for demanding standards, setting expectations, and holding people accountable to those expectations. I'm not angry with a single person. I'm angry with a culture. I'm angry with an allowance and an acceptance for this to be normalized. I mean, we joke around a little bit about the chicken curse. That's an excuse. That's not a reason. It's an excuse. And how many years have I heard, uh, well, you got to give this coach time, and you got to recite, you know, you got to cycle through inferior talent, you got to build depth on the two lines of scrimmage. I get all that, of course. Everybody in America understands that that knows anything about football. But, but the Gamecocks have allowed themselves to abuse the right to have an excuse. A lot of Gamecock fans, the excuse forever was, well, we went 30 years without playing in a conference. You know how hard that is to compete with teams to play in a conference and have identity and brand? And, you know, we went 30 years wandering around in the world of independence. Okay. And now the excuse is, well, this damn conference we play in now, you wouldn't believe how hard it is. <laughs> so, so the excuse was you weren't in a conference. Now the excuse is you're in too hard a conference. Here's what I know. Steve Spurrier proved it could be done. And you know why Spurrier proved it could be done? Because he spent no time worrying about chicken curse. He spent no time worrying about some of the um, some of the willingness to accept less than less than perfect. Spurrier's a different bird. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Steve Spurrier is a complicated human being. Um, most people don't care much for Spurrier. I don't think he cares, but most don't <laughs> care much for him. But you know what Spurrier did? He self-placed expectations. He's not going to tolerate losing, but for so long. He won the ACC at Duke, for God's sake. But he comes to South Carolina, and, and, and we've been led to believe this is a, I think my words yesterday, this is a um, j- just the grind that destroys humanity. You know, you won't believe how hard a job being football coach at the University of South Carolina is. Well, I mean, okay, it's a hard job. Somebody gets paid a lot of money to have at it. Spurrier came there and said, yeah, it's a hard job, but but we're going to win. Why are we going to win? Because I don't tolerate losing. I'm not going to put up with a lot of yeah, losing. He didn't come here to lose. He didn't come here to lose. And it's almost like, who is this crazy guy that <laughs> thinks you can win there? And, and, and we've got we've to we've, we've separate ourselves from, from that belief and that culture and that mindset and that acceptance that, well, nobody can win there. But if you said that we can't blame a person – but you do have to identify the problem. How do you fix it? Well, I mean, to, to me, it's a little bit like the Republican establishment. My daughter said Saturday, I think I sent you a text. My daughter said Saturday, we need a Donald Trump. <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? She said, we need somebody just to sh- turn it up on its head. Um, the University of South Carolina is a complicated, I don't want to go too far down this road, but, but being Clemson's a lot easier job 
than the university. I mean, it, University of South Carolina's got a med school. It's got a, uh, you know, a law school. It's got campuses all over the state. It's a big-ass school. Um, Clemson's different. I mean, it's over there in the corner. They, they can kind of manage their affairs the way they need them to be managed. The state house is on the campus of the University of South Carolina. Somebody said it's political. I said it's going to be political. The state house is is basically in the center of the campus at the University of South Carolina. But but I, I just go back to the culture and the acceptance. Who at USC today is in charge of, of meeting standards? Who at USC today is in charge of setting expectations and demanding that those in leadership meet those expectations? And when they don't, they're dealt with accordingly. You didn't have to hold Spurrier to a standard. He held himself to a standard. I mean, he proven that over the long run. You didn't have to, to say, hey, Steve Spurrier, here are the expectations we have of you. When you hire Spurrier, you knew what the expectations he had of himself were, and we've got to emulate that. It's a hard job. There's no doubt about it, but it's a very good job. It's an opportunity for someone to compete at the highest level. Once again, rabid and loyal fan base, unbelievable commitment to football, the, the best conference in America. That, yeah, I mean, that, that cuts both ways. Of course it does. But you get a chance to play the Georgia Bulldogs on national TV and you lay an egg. And I think you lay an egg because of 50 years of not holding people accountable, not clearly defining what expectations, goals, and objectives are. And Clemson does just the opposite. Here's the story. I'm, I'm, I'm in the rumor bill business now. The story is in 1975 when South Carolina beat Clemson 56 to 20, the powers to be at Clemson got together and said, never again. What do you mean? Never again will our rival embarrass us in, in that way, in that way, shape, and form. What, what, what do you mean they'll never do? Well, watch. Never have. I mean, Spurrier wins a lot of those games. You know, it's five-year winning streak against Clemson. But Clemson set standards. They set expectations. They committed to be better at football than they ever were before. And the proof's in the pudding. And meanwhile, the University of South Carolina, with all due respect, the school that I support and I care deeply for, they've got a women's basketball coach who made an accusation that was found to be untrue, and nobody at the university has apologized. I mean, Don Staley said, I stick by my comments. Nobody at the university within that athletics department has said to BYU, we apologize for what our basketball coach said. That tells me all I need to know. Who's running the joint? Who's in charge of the joint? Who's in charge of making sure people perform at their job and are held accountable when they don't? Because Don Staley was just fundamentally dishonest, never apologized. And nobody at the university, nobody at the flagship university of the state of South Carolina had the guts or gumption to say, we apologize on behalf of our basketball coach because she won't. 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Time for a call and our Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence. Hey, Tony in Hartsville, you're on the air. Yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment. Hopefully y'all don't send somebody to shoot me. But is it because of the color of her skin? And I'm not trying to throw Of course it is. Of course it is. No question about it. I feel like if it was a white person that done hung them and fired them. Well, I mean, I don't thank you, Tony. You appreciate that. I mean, you know, Dawn's a great basketball coach. I mean, she's been she's built an exceptional program, and I don't. I'm not one that worries about how many white girls or black girls or anything like that. But Dawn Staley accused the school of being racist, and there's no corroborating evidence. 
And I do believe, as Tony said, if a white, straight male football coach had said something as reckless and irresponsible as she did, he would have probably been terminated from his job, at least suspended or reprimanded in a very significant and severe way. Dawn Staley does it, and the university has said absolutely nothing about it. I mean, yeah, there's a double standard. You better believe there's a double standard. Now, once again, I'm not that worried about, you know, how many black girls and how many white girls and how many of this. And that doesn't bother me at all. And I'll give Dawn a lot of credit. She's a phenomenal women's basketball coach. She's built probably the premier program in all of America. But she made an accusation that couldn't be corroborated, couldn't be substantiated, and she never apologized to the university she offended, nor did the university she's an employee of apologize. That's unforgivable as far as I'm concerned. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's do a little trivia. You ready? Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia sponsored by Pepsi of Florence. The winner gets a couple of Takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt, six-pack of Pepsi product. Um, And here's the question. Kind of an odd question, but I was interested uh, I was watching some NFL football yesterday, and I won't name this, this stadium because it'll give away the answer to this. But um, thinking about, you know, politics and business and sports, and this one question kind of brings in politics, it brings in business, and it brings in sports. You ready? H.J. Hines Company is based in which American city? 843-661-0937. H.J. Hines Company is based in which American city? 843-661-0937. Do we have a call? Hi, you are on the air. Okay. Let's go over to line two. H.J. Hines Company located in which American city? Hi, you're on. You know the answer? I'm going to guess Pittsburgh. You're right. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Who is this and where are you calling from? This is Joe from Flo. Joe, hang on just a second. (laughs) We'll get you back to Freehold. Joe from Flo. From Freehold. And, um... (laughs) And he'll take your your information. Thank you a lot for listening. Thank you for calling. Yeah, I was thinking about H.J. Hines Company. I think it's Hines Field where the Steelers play. Um, Teresa Hines was the heiress to the Hines Company in Fortune, married John Kerry, um, who was out saving the world in Vietnam. And, I mean, we know the story there. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, so, so um, is, when Kerry flies around the world, is he flying on his plane or is he flying on her plane? Because it looks to me like he and you know he made his money the good old fashioned way. He married it. You know, you either inherited right. or you married it. That's the easy way to make. You know, some people get out and work and build a business and wake up one day and everything you know kind of played out the way you wanted it to play out. Um, well, he John, was a senator. Yeah, he was a senator and um, <laughs> and a decorated military veteran. Uh, you know who Swift boated? Oh, come on, uh, John Kerry, don't you? Boone Pickens. Oh yeah, I mean Pickens is the guy that you told paid me that for. Before. Yeah, Pickens is the guy that paid for behind the scenes uh, the Swift boat. Uh, those those veterans who served with Kerry who said his story ain't exactly the way it went down. And uh, they thought about some of the Swift boats, and he left some of the soldiers. Anyway, who knows what's true or not? But Pickens did not want Kerry to be president and spent a lot of his own hard earned money mm. in making sure. It worked out, and, George. And now Kerry says w. things Bush like, way. people like me, we have to fly on these but jets. But is he flying on his jet or her jet? I think you know the answer yeah, to that. Yeah, of course you know the answer to that. He made money the old-fashioned way. He didn't inherit it, but he married it. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy your Monday. Until tomorrow, have a great day.